yet. It didn't get changed. It got brought to light. You know, police brutality. Now, more people acknowledge that it's a it's a real thing to have. They they've seen it on YouTube. They've seen it on Facebook, and you know, and all of that. They see it. But the but have police departments actually been, you know, uh, right funded, you know, with money put toward social programs? Have has anything changed with you know what judges are in power? We still have this huge propaganda pro- corporate propaganda media empire that's lying to people, and we still got half the country that thinks that that uh, you know the the election was stolen. We got, you know, 16% of uh, people think that the government's run by some weird international baby-killing cabal of Democrats. So we have to persist in change. Revolution in this country isn't going to be an overnight thing. It's going to take a long time to revolutionize people's minds. Persistence? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I think about – you know, John Lewis, I, I recently read his book, Across the Bridge, and, you know, just the he to me, he was like the embodiment of persistence because I think he first became, you know, a freedom fighter in, but when he was like 19, you know, and he never, ever stopped all the way through until he died last year, and just the way that you know, he just kept moving forward um, against incredible headwind. Uh, but but he did get to, to see a lot of things um, improved and, and move forward, even though it's not what we want. Michael, are you typing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can hear you. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> um, the... Uh, was I think so? You know, just even though there 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 was an a incredible headwind all this time, but he did over the course of his lifetime get to see a lot of of progress. And it's not exactly where we want to be. And there is, um, you know, the pendulum swings that happen. I mean, a lot of the craziness that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, is in reaction to the fact that we had a black president for eight years. Like there's a part of the country that just that just freaked them out and blew their minds. And, you know, this is not my America, you know, it's called the white house, you know? And so, um, you know, having a black family in the white house is a lot of this, storming the Capitol and all that sort of stuff really, I think, is in reaction to that. And so, um, you know, it, 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 never, it never ends, but we do, we, are, we have made progress. Um, but I think that th- that process of change um, is, is you know is hard and 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 um, can be really painful, but it's also can be really um, there can be these joyous moments of of uh, realizing that some movement and having people really get um, you know what's actually happening after generations of things being covered up um, 
just having the light and the air circulate over some of these wounds um, can can also bring some joy as well. Wow! Thank you, thank you so much for um, uh, for telling us about you know John Lewis, you know Ashe to his memory. Yes, he definitely is an embodiment of what persistence looks like because it was his whole life, you know, was dedicated to, um, you know, human rights and and mm-hmm. justice. Mm-hmm. I mean, he mm-hmm. was not to be deterred. I mean, it was just amazing. And, uh, you know, his his relationship with uh, Dr. King and his love for Dr. King and, and his ability to... Um, uh, you know, to to sort of to stay in the room and to stay, you know, um, present. You know, even when things didn't go exactly as he wanted to. And you know, when we, mm-hmm. when we hear him talk about what happened around um, the uh, the march on Washington, and and mm-hmm. he was a fiery um, uh, voice, you know, of the youth because he was really mm-hmm. young, and uh, mm-hmm. and then the more conservative, you know, elders like. <laughs> we don't know if he, we want him to say that, you know, when he, when they knew what he was gonna be sharing, you know, as you know, when when it was his time to speak, and um, you know, and in his compromise, you know, not on you know the substance, but on the delivery, you know, it's like wow when he talks about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael, do you have anything else you want to say before I, I read your bios and you talk about the Mayan Troops 62nd season? Like, 62nd season? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's getting to that wow. point where, yeah, well, having a th- being in the theater company that is 62 years old, it starts getting into, mm-hmm. like, you know, first of all, there is the incredible – weight of history on all the members that are in the company of we have this legacy to uphold of revolutionary thought and revolutionary theater and bring in you know uh uh ideas of power to the people in a comic way to the audience um and we've got all of our elders who are always looking over our shoulders you know people who think you know they were in the mime troop in 1972 or something and they come out and see a show and they're like okay you guys are still doing it um, but, uh, you know, and, and continuing to challenge the, you know, the powers that be and to challenge the audience to, to, you know, like with people like Lewis or anyone, the people, it's like, you have to persist. You, uh, there's this old idea that when you get older, you're supposed to get more conservative and, and that shouldn't be the case. You know, mm-hmm. you should never, you know, that, that old saying about how what you're in, when you're in the 20s, you're supposed to be a communist to prove you have a heart. When you're in the 40s, you're supposed to be a capitalist to prove you have a head. And I'm like, no, that just proves you're a weenie. That proves you're weak-minded, <laughs> you know. If you're, if you should be determined and passionate about truth and justice and never become the selfish person who's only worried about your own bank account, you know. If, what, if you make that turn – that's a that's a you know you're sacrificing your younger self. You're saying you were that all of those things that you believed, all of those revolutionary, passionate ideas that you have were wrong, and they weren't. And so, for a company like the Mind Troop, where people we literally get people who say they've grown up watching the company, and seeing our shows invigorates them and keeps them in the fight, 
keeps them um, inspired to continue uh, for change. And so, yeah, we got people who that's been their whole lives. It's a lot, but it's fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you know, we 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 opened you know with uh, uh, an excerpt from you know "Lift Every Voice," you know, um, on on this new federal holiday, uh, you know, the day that enslaved Africans in Texas learned that ah, the war ended and the Confederacy didn't win, and and people of African descent who were enslaved are free. Um, whoa. And then you all, you know, the Mime Troop, kicks off its season on July 4th, another day mm-hmm. of liberation. For whom, though, you know, Frederick Douglass Yeah, really. It's not, asked. I thought I'd tell people, our, the, the, the American Revolution wasn't a revolution. It's a war of independence because – the same class stayed in power. It was still old, rich, white guys that stayed in power. There was no revolution. We just got independence from England. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yes. Then exactly. the real work exactly. began. I mean, England got rid of slavery before the United States did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And I was just thinking about, um, you know, slavery is still on the books in California. Like our mm. Constitution still has slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. The um, if they we have a uh, right now. Um, there's a C uh, ACA three um, is um, California Abolition Act, and uh, it's um, being um, I guess hosted by um, Assembly Member Ash um, Calra, uh, a Democrat. Oh, in uh-huh. And uh, yeah. yeah, but but it still exists, and it's interesting, you know. Other other states in 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 the country have had and have um, slavery on their their state um, books. Yeah, it's um, so right now it's it's still um, it hasn't been it's still there. <laughs> I don't know what's yeah. going on with the bill, but um, it's yeah we we are a slave state. Um, it's still a slave state. It's still a slave state, which kind of makes sense, you know, with all of the incarceration, you know, of so many people. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, we saw how, how you know, how people who um, hadn't committed violent crimes were being held at a time when people were dying behind bars because of the coronavirus and continued to die for a long, long time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, they were dying anyway, but... I mean, like this was something that could have could have been stopped. Yeah, well, the thing with with uh, uh, you know uh, slavery and the continuation of slavery in a lot of states is because they a lot of states wanted. It's like okay, we got to say that we're not going to have slaves anymore, but we still want to use prison labor. We still want to keep. We don't want to word it in such a way that we can't still have people in prison and use their labor. In some way, and that's that's the exception in the Constitution still, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Constitution. You can't have right. you know have people have this unless you do it this way. And so that's the thing that a lot of states are still struggling with is basically, especially in the in the Confederacy, which is still those states are still the they they want to be the Confederacy. They still are the Confederacy. 
they still want to try to figure out how to use black people's labor and, and uh, either put them in jail and prison and use their labor for free or to uh, uh, take away their right to vote, to disenfranchise them if they're, if they're out. Basically, the United States, for a, in, to a large extent, especially when it comes to the police, sees black people as runaway slaves. We are still just potentially murderous runaway slaves in our judicial system. And changing laws like California, because these things matter. You know, people go, ah, that's the old days. No, this is now. And so we have to get these uh, things, you know, get them changed. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Well, Belina Brown, um, you're an actor, singer, songwriter, and director of, of this, this summer series. And you have been a principal performer for the Mime Troupe in such shows as City for Sale, Eating It, 1600 Transylvania Avenue, Mr. Smith Goes to um, Obscuristan, and Showdown at Crawford Gulch, to name a few. You were the devil in Deal with the Devil, uh, Veronica? Veronica? Vera Unique. Vera Unique. Oh, Veron Unique, okay. <laughs> and Veron Unique of the Mounties. Uh, you played Condoleezza Rice three times, and you were both an actor and contributing lyricist on Godfellas and Making a Killing. Uh, your more recent shows with the troupe include Walls, Schooled, Ripple Effect, Red State, Too Big to Fail, and uh, Possibility Dot or Death of the Worker, for which you won a Bay Area Critics Circle Award for Best Principal Actress. Congratulations. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, I've been with the troupe for a long time um, now. It's kind of amazing. But the first time I had the opportunity to work with the troupe was in, in 1992 uh, as a replacement mm. actor for Amara Tabor. Cause she, oh. Do you know Amara um, yes. Dancer, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And a recent yeah. winner of a, <laughs> of a really big award. I can't remember the name of the award, but she's been doing cool stuff all along. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so she had originated a role and um, in social work and uh, didn't want to do the fall tour. So that's how I had my first experience working with the troupe and then, you know, have kind of continued – Ever since. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you, um, last spring, you uh, were touring France with Word for Words production of Pulitzer Prize winner Edward P. Jones's All Aunt Haggard's Children. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then in October of 2017, you and uh, Brooklyn-based ensemble um, Barbiz mm-hmm. uh, released a new album. For those who came after songs of the resistance from the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and then it says that you're taking off for Portugal with uh, Barbez in support of the album. So, yes. did that happen? Well, we, we did or that. You doing yes, it? We, oh. we, we did that, yeah, um, which was really amazing to get a chance to uh, go to Spain where the, mm-hmm. you know, the Spanish Civil War took place. And just like a lot, the International Brigade um, 
the the United States sent the Abraham Lincoln or the I shouldn't say the United States sent. It's that there were Americans who mm-hmm. formed the uh, Abraham Lincoln Brigade who went to fight against fascism in Spain, um, and they were branded premature anti-fascist. So this whole thing about being an anti-fascist, it's like the United States is supposed to be anti-fascist, but people are freaking out today about Antifa, which means, which is short for anti-fascist, you know? Mm. Um, So the people who uh, went to fight against, um, you know, fascism in Spain were people that, I mean, I think the last one passed away last year. But, um, I mean, there are people that I look up to that they were so brave to give up the relative comfort of home to go and fight against oppression uh, and fascism for people in, a, in another country because they understood that, you know, it, it, if that's happening uh, anywhere, that that you know we're not we're not safe and and we're our freedom is is uh is you know at risk if that can be allowed to happen anywhere and so it it it's it's a long it's a long struggle but the the but yes we I toured with Barbez um, Spain and Portugal and singing songs from that era. A lot of beautiful art and music came out of that. And um, any, any kind of um, movement, the art is really, is really important is, is one of them is a key way to uh, uplift people to, uh, to, you know, inform people and to, to keep, you know, it's it's like any kind, like a work song. You know, like those the 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 slavery time work songs and stuff like that to make it so that you can make it another day. You know, um, that's the important role of being of being um, an artist. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah, and maybe maybe you could um... go ahead. Uh, I was thinking maybe you could send me um, send me some songs. I could play them on the air. Oh, oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd that'd be great. Definitely be great. Yeah, and then I also want so, to mention that. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say. So, in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways, either from you know working with the troupe or or doing songs from the Spanish Civil War or whatever kinds of stuff. It's like for me as an artist, that's like um, a big part of my my motor and my why for for doing what I do is using art as a as a way to help us keep going and help us persist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when um, when you were a part of um, the writing and the production and the story of. Um, of a people's temple at at Berkeley Rep, that was that was amazing. Um, you know that storytelling of 
what mm-hmm. happened to all those people and 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 why it was such a hidden history um because mm-hmm. of you know sort of the fear and the terror connected to um uh people's temple and what happened in Guyana and what happened here um you know right there on Fillmore and Gary you know where people's mm-hmm. where people's temple was located and wow just horrendous and 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 now you know we have this mass grave of you know almost a thousand people and a lot of them children you know at Evergreen um cemetery in uh in Oakland mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and the uh you know the justice around that and the injustice around that you know it's still unresolved you know for the people who whose um loved ones are among those killed right how that could happen. right yes well i mean i think that that's a you know an example of the the way that stories are told either hidden and then what is told is so distorted that, um, you know, the main thing that, that has come out of that for a lot of people is the saying, you know, oh, you know, don't drink the Kool-Aid, you know, or you drank the Kool-Aid as, as sort of a thing that you're, you're just stupid and, and um, someone who m- mindlessly follows um, a crowd in, to a, a suicidal um, end or something like that. And it's like, well, but that isn't really, that's not even close to the whole story. And, you know, the people's temple was infiltrated because they were, uh, you know, the, the thing about them was that they, that they saw that the United States was racist and classist and um, they wanted to create, go somewhere and create their own socialist society. And so that, uh, earned them, you know, being on the FBI, you know, watch list and they were infiltrated. And, and so a lot of the things that ha- happened to them, you know, to what degree was that uh, the whole demise of that organization based on them, you know, being internally, you know, like I said, infiltrated and destroyed. So, um, you know, that just the way that the information, the media is, is used as a tool to keep down um, any kind of, you know, questioning of the status quo. They were questioning the status quo, so they needed to be destroyed. That's how, that's, that's how the short way of how I would tell the story of what happened with the people's temple and, and, you know, like over 900 of, you know, of this area's more progressive, um, you know, activists and and particularly uh, black people. It took a really big chunk out of the African-American uh, population of, of San Francisco, um, you know, and it's, it wasn't just about them being uh, sheep or whatever, but that's, that's how it, how the story is told. Um, and, you know, so that's one of the things that we're talking about, not specifically the People's Temple, but the way that the press is being used in uh, Volume 2 of um, Tales of the Resistance is there's the 
the storyline about Tales of the Black Box, um, talking about just the way that, you know, misinformation, disinformation uh, is used to, to keep people uninformed, confused, and out and in fear and outrage, you know, in a way that um, prevents them from being able to actually take in facts. Um, and the way that, you know, if if you are a black person that says that you're uh, conservative and that you don't believe in that that racism exists or whatever, like if, if you're willing to say those kinds of things and be that sort of conservative uh, mouthpiece, you can you can get a show. You can uh, you can be used to uh, perpetuate the lies and they, and they can hide behind you and say, see, we're not racist. Like this, you know, um, this, this black person is saying these things. So, um, so we're kind of, we're talking about that in one of the storylines. Maybe Michael, you want, might want to say a little bit more about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, there are so many different things, you know, trying to deal with, like you're saying, the racism and sexism and how the propaganda machines that have uh, kept the conspiracy theories that our elections don't count and how black people are going to take over if we get the chance to vote everywhere and all of that on the one hand and how, like, you know, the thing about if, you, if, a, if a black person wants a job in the media, the easiest way to get a job is to say you're a conservative because somebody will, some corporation will snap you up and pay you a lot of money to undermine the working class, undermine other, you know, your race, to undermine whatever, and they can use you as a justification for that. And for the Mind Troop, you know, doing that show and then doing the show about police brutality, which we did last year, a show about yeah. about uh, black folks, uh, you know, people in general, just how the police use brutality to keep us down. But one of the things that came up when there were so many protests last year was also the idea of resisting arrest. That resisting arrest is the blanket term that can always be used against every protester, every striker, anybody. It's always, well, you are resisting arrest. And that designation of that crime is only in the mind of the police officer. Any police officer can charge you at any moment with resisting arrest, even if whatever they say they were arresting you for in the first place gets dismissed. You didn't even do that. But you looked at them funny. You walked too fast. You walked too slow. You know, so the other series, so there's the series Tales of the Black Fox, and then there's the other one, which is Jailbreak, about two uh, protesters uh, who have been put in jail for resisting arrest, but they end up in this uh, weird jailbreak situation where the jail is broken into by some by some uh, uh, right wing agitators to get their leader out of jail, but they accidentally break out these two other guys. One's a, a black drag queen protester and the other one's an Asian American Antifa protester who end up rescued by white nationalists accidentally because they all have ski masks on and they end up taking them to their meeting and so that's where you know it's like and the way that that we're doing these shows as opposed to a regular play these shows are done as a series so one episode here one episode there so they, they kind of travel through time in that way 
So, and then in the end, like last year, there were four storylines for Tales of the Resistance dealing with, you know, technology and dealing with racism and sexism and police brutality and dealing with health care, and they all came together in the end. This time there's two storylines that will eventually come together into one final uh, episode. Mm-hmm. So um, since we're talking about, about the series, uh, why don't you continue and tell us um, sort of um, – about about the series of uh, of episodes and um and uh Valina you're actually um you're directing but you're also um both of you which is really what I think is cool about the Mind Troop is that um you know Michael not only are you you know um <clears throat> resident playwright actor director and teacher like I don't know how you can like write it and then you're in it um but you know you've been doing it so long um you know, you're you're just really a master at it. So, it's one of you could just maybe um, tell us the various episodes and and how people can um, can listen, um, sort of where they can listen. And I know I, we already said the kickoff is July 4th. And and because um, I remember last year, which I thought was really great, you know, being able to um, um, to have access, you know, to um, to to the work, which was really great, and um, you know, for a limited time. And I was wondering, is there an archive? Can people look at work from previous, you know, like last year or previous years, and um, how how this is going to roll out? Well, what we did last well, year was we we the shows were on uh, they're on our available on our website at sfmt.org. They could listen to them, and there were also a lot of radio stations that played them around the country. So we had audiences. We were able to reach with our message across the country in a way we hadn't been able to in decades when we used to do a lot of touring with our live shows, and hopefully we'll be doing that again soon. But having the chance to get out there. Uh, and so those shows that we did last year are still archived on our site, so people can go to this web, to the Mime Troop website and listen to those. They'll also be able to go to the website and see all of the radio stations that are going to play our shows this year. And last year, our shows came on every other week, and mm-hmm. we decided this year to try to tighten it up. So this year, it's going to be every week. Every week, there'll be a new episode. And uh, we're also doing it differently in that last year there were 10 shows total that were in these big storylines. And this time we're breaking it up. So we'll have some episodes that are just standalone episodes. They're not about, they're not connected to the other shows. They're just a standalone episode about homelessness uh, this year. And, you know, standalone episode just about, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the quest for money and how Americans have been driven crazy by this idea that you've got to have all of this stuff and how that actually makes your life worse. And then we'll have uh, some community discussions about, you know, about police brutality and about uh, the media and stuff like that. And then we have, in addition to that, the the overall storylines of uh, mysterious mysteries, tales of the black fox and jailbreak, a passion for justice, that those stories will um, weave through and and the shows will come on every week this year, like I said. Mm. And we also have uh, some some uh, short, like a series of shorts. We have the Little Jimmy oh, yeah. series, and we mm-hmm. also have a new um, series called Eyeball on History. 
Yeah, eyeball on history. The idea is that there are all these points in revolutionary history that we uh, we have that have been uh, uh, underplayed or, or or mislabeled in history. So uh, eyeball on history is is kind of like that old television series back from the fifties and sixties, uh, and you are there where a reporter uh. goes in the past and, <laughs> and is witnessing this moment. And the first episode of uh, Eyeball on History is the writing of the 10-point program. So uh. it's like this modern reporter goes back to 1966, and he's talking to Bobby Seale and Huey Newton about the writing of the 10-point program. What's in it? What does it really mean? You know? mm. um, and that they're in the process of writing it while he's talking to them. And then the second episode of Eyeball on History is – uh, uh, a meeting that actually happened between uh, um, the American uh, propagandist Tom Paine and the British uh, woman Mary Wollstonecraft, who wrote the Vindicate uh, the Rights of Woman uh, back in the 1700s. And so it's a meeting between these two talking about revolution. So trying to put in all of these other ideas. And the Little Jimmy episode, for people who've never heard of that and don't know what the heck that is, is a series of short, again, short shows that each one deals with a very specific thing. It's a, it's, it's a conversation between like a, a principal at a small school and a student, and they're talking about really serious political issues. Like there was one that was just about police brutality and, and how uh, American society has been warped in favor of oppression and uh you know different episodes about the election the one that we have one that we have this year the first one is about uh the election the second one's about health care and so these are like short little 10 minute play uh radio mm-hmm. or scripted podcasts as people call them now um you know that that fit in with the other series so we're kind of trying mm-hmm. to do a lot of stuff to give a lot of people uh, different ideas of uh um inspiring people to revolutionary action through these little pieces um, but that are entertaining and informative, but they're plays, you know? Right. I mean, like, I want to just say like with little Jimmy, Jimmy's like 10 years old. And so mm-hmm. it's like this, this child who, who is, is constantly having questions, you know, the way that kids often do will have like big questions and how do you answer those big questions in a way that, you know, someone who's nine or 10 can understand. Um, and, and so that's, that's sort of what we're, we're working with, with the little Jimmy series. Yeah. Like mm. the very first one was little Jimmy, little Jimmy's dilemma, which was his father had lost his job. So he was in a bad mood and the principal explains it to them and he has to explain capitalism. And so it's just like capitalism for kids. This is what the system is. These are the problems with it. This is why it's got to change. And so we're surely dealing with really big issues, but in a, in a straightforward way in, this, in these conversations. So it's a lot of fun. Wow, this is so, so cool. Um, yeah, I, I remember, uh, Michael, um, uh, in your, your piece, um, uh, you look like Huey P. Newton, and, and, and you talked about uh, – how um you grew up um on on a on a on a picket line you know your your parents took mm-hmm. you to protest and and so this is like in your blood um you know like resistance is in your blood and and then i was just thinking also um you know about the two of you you know being such a power uh artistic revolutionary couple 
um, you know, you're married, you've been married a long time, and, you know, Valina, you write, you know, you've got your own business where you teach people about the business of showbiz. And, yeah, it's just, just really amazing, um, you know, how, you know, you've been living this this life consistently, you know. You know, art for change all the time I've known you, and I've known you all both for, like, a long time. And uh wonder if you could talk a little bit more about about this season, about the Mime Troupe. I was reading in the history that um, the San Francisco Rec Department um, took away, uh, revoked the Troupe's performance permit in 1965 on the grounds of obscenity. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wanted to censor the Mime Troupe. Yeah, well, that's always the thing. The idea of being able to – the mind troop was very central in the free speech movement in the 60s mm-hmm. because of the idea of can you go out on public land, you know, the commons, the parks, and talk about politics? Can you go out there and, and challenge the powers that be? And in those days, that was seen as treason. That was, And so they, they had to call it obscenity, um, and it ended up being a, a big deal, and the company went to trial and ultimately was found – not guilty, and they had to change the law because the parks are paid for with our tax dollars, and therefore the government can't step in and say, oh, but these are places where you can't have free speech. And yes, the mine troop, uh, the founder of the mine troop uh, was arrested. Just the, the police had said, if you do this show, you will be arrested. And so mine troop went out, set up the stage, got out, and uh, the founder got up and said, the San Francisco mine troop presents a bus. And the cops came up and grabbed him and dragged him off to jail. Hmm. And so, uh, and you know, and then they went to court. And, they, and that was another thing is that the mine troop, um, in order to raise money for the defense of the mine troop and the free speech thing, the the business manager of the time started holding uh, rock concerts in order to raise money. And that business manager was a guy named Bill Graham who Bill Graham Auditorium downtown is named after him. Bill Graham mm-hmm. Presents became one of the biggest uh, rock impresario companies in, in, you know, in, in the United States. He was the business manager for the mine troop, and he got into being a rock promoter to raise money for the defense of the mine troop. And there are bands like the Grateful Dead. Had their first gig as the Grateful Dead was to raise money for the San Francisco mine troop's um, defense. So – the mind troop has it was at this key moment then, and we've tried to always be that kind of relevant as the decades have gone on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you're one company that has been consistent, and uh, and and I really like the way you bring in um, uh, social justice groups that um, that tie into the themes, you know. And I was wondering, um, you mentioned audience discussion. Are there going to be audience? Is there an audience discussion component uh, sort of um, programmed into um, this this uh, this series, a podcast? And if so, how? Well, there will be uh, there'll be more like community discussions. We're going to bring in, like you said, different organizations, and we'll have discussions with them. They won't be. Uh, like last year we did discussions uh, with the San Francisco library um, mm-hmm. related okay. to each, each show. We did these discussions and audience members could come, come to a zoom meeting and do it. Mm-hmm. But that was a little, um, 
it was difficult because not everybody had the amount of time that we needed to do that. So this year they're going to be um, recorded and presented, and then at the end we'll do a, a big discussion. Okay. okay. But we do work with work with community organizations and activists all the time to do what we call political education because we don't assume we know everything. So we always have people come in to talk to us and to our audience about the issues that we're illustrating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, would you like to talk about, um, you know, um, the other members of the production as well as, um, you know, other directors and um, composers and, of course, you know, the, the cast? Because I think well, you yeah, have some special yeah. guests. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, well... Oh, yeah. Well, I was just going to say that we um, are really pleased to have the opportunity to work with Francis Jew. He uh, is uh, uh, one of our special guests. Um, Francis is from the Bay Area, uh, but he's gone on to do a number of uh, Broadway uh, works and uh, was, I think, the original cast uh, lead in M. Butterfly. And um, he's a wonderful actor, and and so it was really great to have the opportunity to to bring him in. And then we're getting to work, continue to work with um, wonderful actors that some of our you know our audience might know in terms of like Wilma Bonet, who's 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 been around with the troupe um, was in the you know in the 80s was. Um, uh, a major actor at that time in the troupe and then uh, has come back several times to direct shows for us in more recent years. Really funny. Um, Brian Rivera, um, and uh, who's, who's great, who you might have, some of you who've gotten to see some Broadway stuff, he was in The King and I. Um, and then we have, you know, like, Regulars like Keiko Shimasato Carrero and uh, Rotimi Agba Biaka and um, and Andre Amaradico, Lizzie Calagero, um, Jerry and Monroe, Jerry and Monroe, yes, hilarious Jerry and Monroe, um, and um, Cassie Grilly. Yes, we're getting a chance to work with her again. She uh, made her debut with us last year and um, and is continuing this year. And the thing that's really fun about this, too, is that, I mean, we love being, you know, in the park, doing the shows live with our audience. And, and, and it's been uh, hard to have that separation of, you know, in, in-person-ness with, uh, with our, our peeps. But, um, but doing this, the a perk of it of doing the radio and recording is that we can work with people from all over because like um you know Cassie just moved to um LA but we can still work with her she just moved uh, like 3 weeks ago um Lisa Hori Garcia longtime troop member uh recently moved to Denver but we could still work with her um Ugo Carbajal also a long-time yeah. line trooper who moved to Los Angeles, but we can still work with him. Yeah. So, so that's, that's been really, really great musicians like Dred Scott, 
um, New York uh, musician. Um, we got, and then um, Daniel Savio, who is our composer lyricist, whose father was Mario Savio, part of the free speech movement. Um, his cousin, uh, Jeremy Mage, lives in Switzerland, and they were able to collaborate on music last year. So that's, that's sort of an upside of, of working in this particular medium. Um, but we are looking forward to next year getting back into uh, the parks. Wow, that's, that's pretty amazing. Wow, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is pretty amazing. I'm, I was really surprised um, because everyone is sort of pushing to open up and unmask mm-hmm. and that, that the Mime Troop would, would be taking it a little more cautiously and um and I and I and I like the caution, you know, the safety <laughs> aspect of it. <laughs> personally. Um Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean I understand the that, that that there is this push and I totally understand it. Theater companies are like, you know, this is what we do. We do these shows and we've got these theaters and we want to be in person. But at the same time for the mind troop we're like, you know, we want to make sure to take care of our audience in a different way. You know. Um, because like for a regular theater company, like SF Playhouse or someone, they can make sure that everybody in the audience is seated separately. They can make sure that everybody's vaccinated. They can do everything they can to take care of the audience, but the mind troop can't. We're doing a show in the park, which means people might get too close together. They're not going to be huddled up with each other. We can't make sure that everybody's vaccinated because they're just whoever shows up. So different theaters have to do it in different ways, and we felt the most responsible way for us to do it with our audience was to continue with the radio and scripted podcast shows for this year. But we're going to keep doing these even when we do our – go back to our regular shows next year. We're going to keep doing the radio shows also because, like I said, because we can reach people across the country because they're, they're – uh, it's a way to tell a smaller story. It doesn't take as much, doesn't impact the company in the same way of having to do, you know, six weeks or eight weeks of rehearsal and building sets and all that. If something comes up, we can deal with it right away. If there's a protest or, or a, you know, an insurrection or whatever, and we have an idea about it, we can do that and be ready in two weeks and have that show up and on the radio. So, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, integrate this idea in for the future of the mind trip. Well, I mean, also, I, I want to say, though, that the planning of a, of a season, of a summer season tour, um, takes, you know, you have to start almost a year in advance, you know, and, the, and all the different park and rec um, organizations have to be uh, ready to take your reservation and, and put you in the in in their their schedule so um finding out like okay so things have just quote unquote opened up right uh june 15th well we it's not like okay so now we can be in the park july 4th it's like no that it takes months before to to be able to get the park permits and all that sort of thing for the different places so to have it open up you know, June 15th doesn't mean that we could have our whole season 
planned. So we, when we would have needed to be um, putting the season together in that way, um, the parks weren't giving permits yet, you know. So just the, the timing was out, out of whack as well. So, but we've, you know, we, barring any kind of a resurgence of, of uh, you know, the pandemic, uh, if everything continues to move forward in a positive way with, with more and more people getting vaccinated and cases going, continuing to go down, then new cases continuing to go down, then we, then we should be able to do a full tour next, next year. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, uh, thank you so much for this really wonderful conversation with both of you. Um, it's really rare, and I always really enjoy um, sort of catching up with you. I was wondering, um, were, were there any other um, uh, aspects of, of Tales of Resistance, Volume 2, Persistence, um, that you'd like to share with our audience um, or, you know, just anything going on with the MIME Troop um, that we haven't already spoken of or, you know, your lives, um, you know, outside of the MIME Troop. But I don't know, I think there's sort of like there's always some kind of overlap because the MIME Troop is a part of your lives. Wow, 62 years, that is pretty amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And Michael's been with the company for half of that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I came in pretty young, and then and Valina started a few years after that. So yes, we've been, and and like you were saying, the Mind Troop is one of those companies where since we don't have an artistic director, we have a collective. We are you know democratic socialism in action. Um, it allows people to stay and to grow. I, we both came in as actors, and then I started writing, and then I started directing, and then Valina wrote some uh, lyrics for songs, and then uh, and she started to direct now. So th- it's a company where there's that space. If you can prove yourself, if you can do the job, you can actually get the job. Um, it's much more merit than it is just who you know and how do you do it. Um, so there's a, there's a lot – You know, it's a great company to be a member of because uh, it's a place where you get to speak your mind and speak truth to power. That's what we do, and we don't have to knuckle under to somebody in an upstairs office somewhere. Uh, Oh, you were asking about other stuff, though. Also, we have – you know, everybody in the troop works outside as much as we can because, you know, got to make a living. Um, And so people do things, (laughs) do shows and jobs other places, and uh, (laughs) – I was, I've been fortunate enough to have um, a show that I, I wrote last year. Before I wrote the Mind Troop show, um, mm. I wrote uh, this other play, which is going to open uh, this coming year at theaters around the country, called The Great Con, which is mm. about uh, uh, the principal characters are uh, two black teenagers who are struggling against, uh, how, you know, should they just fulfill, should they try to be themselves or should they try to fulfill the racist stereotypes that America is kind of forcing on them? It's like, is that mm-hmm. easier to do or is it better to struggle against that and be yourself? And who are you? You're a teenager. You're not even finished yet. So while they're struggling against that and the way they meet is that the young boy, even though he's kind of a gamer nerd, he saved this girl from being raped. And she, on the one hand, he never did anything like that before. So he's still scared about uh, the boys that he saved her from might find him. And on the other hand, the girl doesn't want to be seen as a victim, so she's got to tell him, you know, I don't want you telling anybody you saved me because I don't want anybody seeing, thinking me as somebody who's got to be saved. So they're struggling with who they are, 
And then Genghis Khan shows up, uh, which is explained how that happens in the play. Um, so it's, uh, it's you know, uh, a political comedy in that it's about politics, but it's also about this black family, and it's about education, and it's about history. And so, so just keep an eye out for that show because it's going to um, play at uh, a few theaters around the country, big theaters, uh, in this next couple next season. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Please let me know. We can have you on again to talk about that. Very excellent, Valina. You have anything going on that you want to share with us? Share with us so we can support you in it. Besides what we've already oh. talked about. Thank you. Um, the main thing that I'm doing right now is is working on Tales of Resistance too. I mean, I think that um, one of the things that I'm really working on as just as a person and as as a woman um, is trying to uh, do fewer things with deep deeper intent. I've been juggling a lot of things you know, for a long time. And that, and that's been great and a value, but I'm at a point where I just want to be like kind of more focused on, on um, fewer things and, and cultivating ease and not being so frazzled. (laughs) So, um, yeah. So just the idea, I think this is also taking me back to um, Amara Tabor and Ellen Sebastian Chang, some of the projects that they've been working on and and the concept of black women resting, yeah, resting. you know, yeah. and that, that yeah. a black woman resting is a revolutionary act. <laughs> yes. You know, mm-hmm. that just being right. able to recharge and refill your cup and and that that's not something to feel guilty about, that you're actually taking care of yourself. And then so that when you do show up, um, you know, you can show up in, in all of your fullness and not just just sort of barely, you know, just barely hanging on kind of thing, you know. Um so I don't know. I'm just kind of I, I'm I feel blessed to be able to to uh practice that now. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of the latest thing, which is like n- not a a public project but an internal project that's that feels very important right now. Mhm. Yeah. Oh, and also our son just started co- our son is starting college. That's the other oh, big project we're working on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's, he's going to San Francisco State. Oh, he's so. staying local. Okay, nice, mm-hmm. nice. That's very local. We that he still lives. Michael with us. and I went yeah. there. <laughs> oh, oh, so he's a legacy kid. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, nice, you know, nice. another thing I think I want to just throw out there is that. Um, what's been really special for me all all this time as an artist and again, as a woman um, has been at the troupe. The troupe is a family friendly theater company so that when we had Zachary, we could bring him to rehearsals. We could bring him 
on tour with us. And it was just part of how we rolled, you know, the um, Keiko Shimasato Carrero and Michael Carrero, their son, Julian came to rehearsals, came on, on, came to Germany with us when we were um, doing a international theater festival there. Like that has been part of the strength of the company and has made it so that families and women artists didn't have to choose between being, you know, um, performers and continuing with that or, or having a family. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that that, is such a revolutionary act mm -hmm. for a theater company to offer that. Somebody asked me one time, and it's like, well, what do you think would make a big difference for actors to be able to work at our theater company? And I said, offer daycare. If you would just offer daycare, more, you know, family members would be able to work at your theater company. And it just hadn't even occurred to them that there were women who couldn't work there because they had, and they had to, they're like, oh, she hasn't been in a show in three years. That's because you don't have daycare. It's so important to take these things into consideration and also to hold these companies accountable. It's like, why aren't you doing this? Why are you making it so hard for women, for working class women, to stay in the business? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's always yeah. something. Yeah. But that's a great uh, thing about the company, like Alina says. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, that's really great. And and then on a, a personal level, um, is it the work that um, has really sort of um, been like a major bond between the two of you? Um, uh, as as a couple, like where does that fit in? To because you all well, have we, been together have, a long time. Yeah, Valina and I met in junior high. Or oh, you know, we met at <laughs> Roosevelt Junior High in San Francisco. Um, mm. We've known each other since we were teenagers, um, and we both started uh, started dating before we were really professional actors. We were in college, so. Uh, being performers, I mean, we were in the same little independent theater company in high school and stuff, but even that, we met in band class before either of us were thinking about being actors. So mm-hmm. that part of it, uh, just being in a, uh, being actors, being activist actors, being in a company like the Mime Troupe, just added to us being able to spend more time together. And then she, somebody asked me when Valina first joined the company, she was like, uh, somebody said to me, Oh well, this is going to be weird. She's going to be—you're going to be working with her all the time. And I said, if I didn't want to be with Valina all the time, I wouldn't be dating her. And at that point, I'm married to her. This is a benefit. I get to be with her more. You know, we mm-hmm. get to get up together and go in and talk about politics and comedy and all this stuff. And then we get to come home and continue to talk about politics and comedy. <laughs> you know, how cool is that? That I get to spend so much time with the person I love. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that um, first, I guess for some people that that amount of of time together sounds like a nightmare, but um, it's it's been good for us just because um, the work is very demanding, and I think if you're, you know, if you're with somebody that doesn't understand what it is that you're doing, you know. Um, I've I've definitely shared dressing rooms with, you know, women who were in relationships with what I call civilians. And it's, um, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, 
tech week, you know, when you just kind of go into overdrive for a bit there a lot in terms of how many hours you're at the theater and just being in a room with someone who they've just gotten off the phone with their partner who's like pissed off that they're not there. You're what you're going to be there for 12 hours, you know, like you're never home and, and just really giving them, it's like, it's tech week. Like at once we open, things will be better. But a lot of times people, they don't understand it and they freak out and, and, or break up with you because you're never home during that time or something. And, and, um, you know, so I feel super fortunate to, to be with, you know, with somebody who understands so that if I say, oh, we're going into tech week, you know, it's like, say no more. You don't have to explain anything. It's like, yeah, it's going to be intense for a little bit. And um, so that's, that's a, a key uh, to being able to, you know, have, have uh, a full artistic experience, too, is just being able to marry, to be with somebody who understands what it is you're doing and isn't going to be pulling in the opposite direction, you know. And making you feel bad for for what it what is required mm, to do mm-hmm. something well. Yes, yes. So, want to let our audience know that we're speaking to Valina Brown and Michael Jean Sullivan about um, Tales of Resistance, Volume Two: Persistence. Um, and you can, I guess, learn about what radio stations are carrying um, the uh, the. the the podcast uh, by going to the website uh, for the San Francisco Mime Troop, sfmt.org forward slash tales, volume two. And um, and these um, uh, podcasts will be carried um, on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube as well. So um, this should be, I don't know, it sounds like everyone should be able to to have access <laughs> to the work and yeah. it begins on, it's, on July. It's like our 4th. regular shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we right. try to, our yeah. shows are free. We try to make sure they're free so that everybody in the working class can afford to see one or hear, in this case, hear one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're going to be released weekly um, from July 4th, Sunday, July 4th through September 5th. So it's going to be really exciting. And, uh, and actually, I, I have. Um, I have the trailer that I'm going to play when we conclude our conversation. Okay. Cool. Well, thank mm-hmm. you so much, Wanda. It's always wonderful to talk to you. Oh, yeah. you're quite welcome. Yeah, looking forward to seeing you all, hearing you all in the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just shout out to our audience. We miss you. We can't wait to see you next year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for continuing the good work, and uh, I'm glad your our safety is your primary concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 a lot, and and you know that's how we're going to be able to get through this. And and you know San Francisco and California have done a really good job, but we have to uh, we always have to think about you know people are like oh, I don't want to wear a mask, I don't want to do this, I want to do that, and it's like it's not about you, it's about everybody else. You know, it's an essential part mm-hmm. of being in a community is are you taking care of other people? And the mask and all of that was always about taking care of other people. Mm-hmm. So that's right. Hopefully we've learned something. Mm. Yes, hopefully we have. <laughs> you all take good care. You too. Okay, Thank you. Too. Bye. Peace and blessings.
Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Radio Mime Troop, and welcome to Tales of the Resistance, Volume 2, Persistence, another summer of original political comedy radio play podcast by the confusingly named, always radical, and never ever silent, San Francisco Mime Troop. Starting July 4th, every week through September 5th, we will present one new episode written, directed, and performed by San Francisco Mime Troop veterans dealing with the revolutionary issues of the day. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really looking forward to um, episode one. And I wanted to remind everyone uh, about a few things um, in the theater. uh, make sure you catch uh, Oakland Theater Project's um, current um, uh, production, uh, which is still up. Uh, we had a great interview with um, uh, Donnell Troop, who is uh, co-director, and she's also in in the production. Uh, also, um, a Counter Pulse uh, Dancing Diaspora is, I think, in its uh, it's still going on, and I think it might be a second. Uh, week, um, and so you can catch that. Um, that actually is in the theater, and for Oakland Theater Project, it's a drive-in um, theater, so you're sitting in your car and watching uh, the production. I think you're listening on your radio. So anyway, that's in Oakland. Uh, Dancing Diaspora is in San Francisco, and I think I think they both are going to have a virtual um, uh, a virtual presentation during the the live um, series. Um, And then we've got uh, Kevin Legrone's um, wonderful work, uh, playwright, uh, Pillow Talk, which is up at Theater Rhinoceros, and this is virtual. And after each one of the productions, the... um, uh, your audience is able to to ask questions and engage with the cast as well as the director and and other members of of the production team. And uh, I saw it, Pillow Talk, and it was really really phenomenal. It was about two weeks ago I saw it. Was it two weeks? No, last week. <laughs> Previews. It was really awesome last Friday night. Really really good. So you don't want to miss these productions. Um, they're really phenomenal. And. Um, and now I am going to uh, oh Afro Solo, Afro Solo Week Two um, concludes on Sunday and Happy Father's Day everybody. Um, concludes this Sunday with um, uh, the stories of uh, Elroy, and um, and this is uh, the artistic director um, Robert Thomas Simpson's story about his father, and it's really, really, really beautiful. And you can watch this on Afro Solo uh, TV on YouTube. And and these are, are free. The uh, Afro Solo production is a free production. And uh, so um, you definitely want to take advantage of that. So, uh, yeah, and uh, so it's really... Um, it's really, really marvelous. And then lastly, I want to um, give everyone an announcement about the um, Monumental Reckoning, which is today. And I want to give you the uh, the details on that. You can go to Eventbrite to, um, to find out more about it. 
However, um, and you can watch, uh, you can go to the website, monumentalreckoning.org, to read about the project, to to watch the short video that sort of puts into context, um, you know, the history that is being um, honored um, and lifted up in this um, this project. Um, sculptor Dana King uh, has installed 350 ancestral sculptures, and these 350 uh, sculpted pieces represent the first Africans stolen from their homeland and sold into chattel slavery in 1619. And this new work uh, of radically inclusive art uh, will reside in the heart of San Francisco's Golden Gate Park for two years. Um, it's located on the plinth um, uh, right down from the Spreckles Temple of Music and and the, the fountain, the three fountains that um, are directly in front of the Spreckles Temple of Music. So, um, and, and it's on the plinth, the plinth that last year um, protesters toppled Francis Scott Key's sculpture. So, um, so anyway, it's it's and so today, this evening at five o'clock, um, there's going to be a program, uh, in you know, sort of um, celebrating uh, this installation and uh, the event tonight, which is free. Um, uh, it's going to be uh, have opening marks by San Francisco Mayor London Breed. There's going to be a processional uh, with the choir singing James Weldon Johnson's "Lift Every Voice." Um, and there's going to be a libation cer- ceremony to thank and bless the ancestors. Uh, there's going to be drumming. And um, it's going to open with a musical production by Martin Luther McCoy, Rebel Soul, recording artist and member of the SF Jazz Collective. And, again, uh, that's it all starts at 5 o'clock, and it's free. Bring your, bring your family. Uh, and... Um, yeah, it's going to be really, really, really a beautiful program. And again, um, you can go to um, Eventbrite and and get all the information on you know how to get there and blah blah blah. And this you know Golden Gate Park um, concourse is um, on on the Muni route. You know you take Bart and Muni, and it stops right really close. You can't drive into the um, to the park anymore, uh, but you can definitely um, walk in and you can you know, park in the garages, which are private. However, you need to remember that the garages close at 7 o'clock. So, yeah, so I just wanted to announce that. And now I am going to play this, um, uh, rebroadcast this show that was first aired um, a couple of weeks ago, June 9th. Enjoy. Sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's all right 
You're pronouncing it right, Vernon Madaris. Yeah, and we're both Gemini's. When's your birthday? <laughs> My birthday is this coming Monday, Memorial Day. I'll be 65 years old. I'll be a Ooh. official senior citizen. Official. You got your AARP card. <laughs> yep, I sure do. <laughs> Although we've been able to get discounts since we were 50 nowadays. You know, they, they've sort of moved yeah. the, the elder age down. But um, right. yeah, yeah. So, so Thomas, I know every year you have this theme, and I remember those letters that elders were writing to young people, 
to sort of yes. share some wisdom to keep them from going astray. Um, um, mm-hmm. You know, El Haj Malik El Shabazz's birthday was last Wednesday, and mm. I was speaking to uh, Professor Manu Ampin, and he was saying that uh, El Haj Malik El Shabazz, you know, his life was sort of like fell into these different stages, like between yes. um, school age and around 13, 14. He was, you know, valedictorian of his his class. And then, and then, you know, his father was killed, and his mother was institutionalized. And then, um, you know, he was put in a foster care, and you know, his dreams were kind of like destroyed. And then he had like that that thug section of his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then he, you know, all the time he was, you know, sort of with his family, and you know, his family was influencing him, um, you know, about you know, sort of other directions that his life could take. And so he, he learned about the Nation of Islam and honor Elijah Muhammad, and he sort of came back to his roots, so to speak, you know, what his mother had taught him. And mm-hmm. and, and he, um, you know, he, he transformed his life. Um, and and when he came out of prison, you know, he, he grew the Nation of Islam from an idea into a real nation. And then the last stage was, you know, him becoming an international leader. Um, and so so I'm just sort of thinking about that and thinking about, you know, um, these stories, you know, that, that, you know, the men who are joining us right now are, are going to be telling and, and some of the other projects. So I was just wondering, Thomas, if you could talk about sort of black men embracing our light um, and, and sort of your impetus for this particular um uh, Afro Solo Festival Program One, uh, June 9th through 13th, and I think it's free, isn't it? It's going to be online, and it will be free. Yeah. Yes, uh, which is wow. great. Well, Black mm-hmm. Men Embracing Our Lives. One of the themes that we've had several times throughout our 26, 26 years is to provide space for Black men to tell our stories from our point mm. of view. In our society, one of the critical areas that we have um, found ourselves has been in the criminal justice system for one reason or or another. And I've always wanted to have people to talk about that experience. Um, It's, for me, it kind of theater and the arts kind of open a window to oneself to let others see who they are, but also for them to find out more about who they are. And my goal is through this open wonder experience that we become much more understanding of each other, much more empathetic of each other. Now, in terms of um, uh, the theme embracing our lives, there are times that uh, our light that, you know, we do things we may not want in the light. But to be whole, I think at some point we have to embrace, you know, our full selves. And having men talk about their experience uh, in this juvenile, in the uh, criminal justice system, whether it's one day or 15 or 20 years, is a way of, of, of helping to heal that. But not only heal it for the individual, but heal it for the whole community. And mm-hmm. such themes come up for me as forgiveness, you know, forgiveness of self, um, uh, redemption, uh, given back to community, justice, but one thing that I've just working with the men that I work with the last couple of years uh, who uh, have been able to uh, conquer drug addiction, that's phenomenal because as I often say, I can't go past a pint of ice cream 
without wanting to indulge. So people who have been able to overcome addictions, I just put them almost on a pedestal. And a number of the men that we work with have done that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember you were going to be making, writing, uh, picking those letters um, from the, the elders to the youth and, and doing a book. Did, did you ever come out? Did, did you produce that book? I haven't produced that book. That book is still a work in progress. And okay. I have some wonderful letters that will be in it. And uh, mm-hmm. that's still one of the, uh, the items on my uh, bucket list to do, to complete. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and and so Thomas, how did these men that have joined us this morning, how did they end up becoming a part of this this you know iteration of of this particular program, which I hope you're going to continue because I'm sure there are a lot of other stories that you could tell that, that other people can tell. I certainly hope so. And they came through various means. There is an organization here in San Francisco called Mentoring Men's Movement, which is an organization that works with um, mostly black men, but any man who is in jail or prison uh, to help prepare them for their uh, time out and hopefully have a successful uh, reentry or returning, as we call them, returning citizens, a return to uh, return to home. So I got connected with them, and so while hearing some of them talk, I was uh, enamored and, uh, I mean, just in lots of ways overwhelmed about hearing the stories. So I thought this would be great to get some of these stories down and to tell people. So that was how it got started, and I met each one of the people today through that process except for uh, Freddie. I met him through another program that that does some similar type work. Mm-hmm. And right. I do yeah. hope to continue. I do hope to continue working in this arena. Mhm. Yeah. So Thomas, we're gonna um, we're gonna circle back around and, and let you talk about program two because you're gonna be um, revisiting that wonderful story that you tell about your family, Courage Under Fire, the Liberation of Elroy, uh, yes. written and performed by you. And I I know for quite a few of these pieces. You either acted as director in concert with another director or dramaturge because um, that's what you do in Afro Solo. You help people write their story. You help them, you know, m- you know, mount it, and then you give them a space to share the work. So that's really wonderful. And, you know, at a time when people are sort of Black Lives Matter has become, you know, sort of the rally and cry, Afro Solo was already talking about black lives. <laughs> And it's one of the few venues left where black folks can get together, you know, on stage and tell their stories uninterrupted and 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 also um, undiluted. Like you don't have to compromise your truth um, in these spaces that you have, um, pre- you know, you have created, uh, Thomas, over the years, which is really, really wonderful. So we're going to start with Larry Griffin. Um, you could talk about my first day in jail, and I was just thinking, um, uh, if I if I read your bio, I'm going to tell the story. So I'm not going to read your bio. <laughs> you could uh, tell us about tell us your story. I just thought it was crazy that um, you were arrested at in second grade because I'm thinking first grade is five, second grade uh, first grade is 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 six maybe. 
the kindergarten is five. And so you were like seven, I think? I think I was uh, you know, around seven. You know, they, the grading system of school is different now. So I want to say I was in maybe second grade, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you were a baby, like a little child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that part. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I don't know where you want me to start. Um, oh, just, you know, share, 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 like, uh, some information. Like, tell us who you are and tell us about the story. You don't give it, you know, you don't have to give away everything. Okay. But just talk a little okay. bit about, about your life and, and, you know, why you wanted to share this story. Um, you know, in in uh, in Afro Solo, and um, <clears throat> yeah, and you could talk about you know sort of how you wrote it if you like, and you know um, the director, um, you know Wayne Harris. I love his work. Um, he was he was a <clears throat> director of of your piece, uh, My First Day in Jail. And Wayne Harris, he writes his stories are all about his life. You know, right. uh, growing up in in Michigan, is it Detroit? Um, and I mean, his one about mother's milk. That was like, oh my gosh, that was when I first I met think him. It's, I think it was in St. Louis. St. Louis, okay, Missouri, okay. Yeah. Thanks, Thomas. Yeah. So anyway, um, well, and and Thomas, if you want to, if you want to engage, you can also, you know, you can talk to because you yeah. know, you know the work. Sure. So, yeah. um, Larry, can you tell yes. a little bit about how you got started working with me? How did we meet? Do you remember? One of those breakfasts. We met. We met at. Uh, um, you know, uh, one of my relatives uh, is uh, part of that uh, mentoring group, and he had me. He had me come and you know he wanted me to come and you know support and you know share with the men and stuff. I guess that was about ooh, maybe three years ago. Yes. Going on for it, yeah. And I met you, Thomas. Uh, um, my cousin mentioned that you were starting a, a, a workshop. I said, well, hell, hell, I'm not doing that. Let me, let me go. Let me go check it out. And from there, uh, uh, he was asking us to write something about ourselves. And and we went, from there, went to something else. And then went to, uh, um, I don't know how the subject came up about uh, being in jail. So I, uh, and when you, uh, when you said that, I remember that. Uh, uh, wow, man, I was a kid. I was a kid, uh, uh, six or seven, experiencing juvenile and how it happened in in a classroom setting. And you know, uh, I guess that's my first. That was my first um, introduction. Yeah, what? But also. Um, I want to say since the, the, the woman was uh, Caucasian, maybe my first introduction to racism. I don't know, you know, mm. Uh, mm. for for her to do that like that, mm-hmm. you know, you know. And one of the so, methods that I use in uh, working with uh, the you know everyone is the Socratic. If someone mentions the subject, I begin to mm-hmm. ask questions about it. And then in asking questions, it draws out the story a little bit more and a little bit more. Larry was saying right. that we worked on some things, and then he had to go back and, you know, ask, ask questions, and then he would fill in those questions. Then he'd bring up other things, and the story just kind of grew and developed. Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, that mentoring group, you know, um, I think I had been attending it maybe because it was like once a month on on Saturdays, and yeah. uh, uh, the, one of the guys that uh, runs the group uh, is my cousin, mm-hmm. and he was in, he was instrument inter, uh, instrumental in because uh, I'm I'm a recovering person, I'm a recovering addict, and. When I got out of jail, ooh, nice. Ninety-five. When I got in, re- when I got in recovery, my cousin was uh, he was doing a he was doing a group. It was um, uh, I think it was uh, domestic on in the domestic violence or was it on on um, um what was it domestic violence? Well, anyway, excuse me. I was just going to say his name is George Durand. Yeah, George Durand. And he's been involved with you know the system for you know twenty or thirty years, and it's amazing to hear the number of men come out to talk about his influence and how he was so helpful with them. So this is uh, Larry's cousin. So go ahead, Larry. Yeah, and yeah, he was instrumental for me. um, You know, sticking around in recovery. Oh, it was anger management. Okay. And uh, I end up because uh, uh, I, you know, took some anger management classes. And fast forward, when, you know, in recovery, I was a counselor, and I, I, I had some anger management uh, classes, and I was I was uh, uh, I teach anger management. I did I did a few things in recovery. And he just he, one time he just told me, "Hey man, I need you to come and support this group." And that's how I uh, hooked, got hooked up with uh, with Thomas. And from there, I just went. You know, I'm born and raised in the city of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, in the '60s, I was caught up in the Hey Ashbury Hippie Hill thing back in the day, where it said where marijuana at the time was it was from the earth, so it's non addictive. Yeah, that was that was something. But yeah, Boner, you know, came up in the, in, in in the sixties in the San Francisco area. One uh, of the um, uh, all the everyone has a really interesting story in lots of different ways, but mm-hmm. Larry has a very interesting story. Larry, can you tell us a little bit about the barbershop and uh, who came into your barbershop? Just sort of talk about that. Yeah, my, my yeah, my dad was a barber. He's one of I'm assuming he's one of the best barbers in, at the time at Chicago Barber Shop, and he had a couple of other barber shops. Um, and you know the local the entertainers and uh, 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 basketball players, uh, Nate Thurman, Willie Mays, entertainers like. Uh, 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 Sam Cook. Sam Cook was was the one that stood out for me because uh, on my birthday one time he came by and came in the barber shop and gave me a fifty dollar bill. In 1962, you know how much fifty dollars could get you in 1962, and I'm I'm unaware how how famous he was, you know. So I was. Tell us how you found out. Tell us how you found out how famous he was. Um, you know, uh, uh, 
when he, actually when he passed, um, God came into the barbershop and said, hey, man, man, Sam is dead. And I'm, I said, I know he ain't talking about because I, I called him my play uncle. I know you ain't talking about him. Yeah, that's how I found out he passed. And then I started, you know, I started listening to his music after, after he passed. So um, the, the thing about that, I got introduced to a lot of uh, edu- uh, uh, politicians, uh, uh, athletes. So I was supposed to a lot of good stuff and also to a lot of bad stuff. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess the does it give you a good flavor, Wanda? Yes, yes. Okay, great. Yes, yes. Very, yeah. very Thank good you, flavor. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in San Francisco as well, and you know, I didn't get haircuts, but my brother, brother did. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like when you when you when you mentioned your father's barbershop, I was like, hmm, I wonder if my brother went to his shop. Where 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 are, where were or where are your dad's barbershops? Well, the, uh, the first one I can remember was that Chicago barbershop. It was like 60-something. The Chicago barbershop was originally on Post and Fillmore. Then it moved down to, uh, stayed on Fillmore around O'Farrell and Gary. But my father had another barbershop on on, uh, on Sutter. It was right across the street from the girls' Y. Then it was the one... Uh, on Fillmore and McAllister, right across the street from a club called the Blue Mirror. And, uh, how many? At least four or five, four, uh, about four or five different bars that I, that I can keep up with. Wow, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, so cool. It was cool. all in the same area. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. Well, excellent. Well, I look forward to, um, to seeing, you know, seeing your work, um, <coughs> Yeah, it should be interesting, um, uh, you know, plays. I, I still haven't gotten used to the different ways that um, uh, productions appear in in, in uh, online platforms. So it should be interesting. Um, maybe, Thomas, you could talk about that a little later on, about how with the look of, of the production um, in an online platform, um, yeah. you know, sort of how you're, how you're making that work theatrically. Um, and it's a work in progress. This is the first time we've done this uh, because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. So we're kind of yeah. learning as we go. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. So Jeffrey Greer, you your piece is called yes. Resurrection. And, um, and, you know, we know you as the manager of the San Francisco Recovery Theater, uh, whose mission is to organize the synergy between actors, scripted material, and newcomers, recently incarcerated and homeless performers. Um, however, I, I don't, I didn't, did I know that you were a recovering addict? I don't, I don't think I knew this. <laughs> um, <Well>. yeah, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. talk about, talk about resurrection and, and, um, you know, I know you, you know, you graduated with a BA in psychology from San Francisco State University and, and, and you, I know you all, you use theater as, a tool for recovery and sobriety, because um, you know that's your venue, <laughs> you know, theater arts. Um, but you also, I think, you also are um, a therapist too. So anyway, yeah. So talk about this work and 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 how you know why you wanted to be a part of this 
this um, debut um, uh, fraternity? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think that, um, first of all, I'm not a therapist. Oh, you're not? Can okay. you hear me? Yeah, I can hear yeah, you. I'm not mm-hmm. a therapist. But, you know, I think that the practice of therapy is, is you know, very broad. And there's an opportunity to uh, heal among everyone. Um, Thomas and I have known each other for years. And we kind of bounced around back and forth. And uh, a couple of years ago, he was talking about this project. And I said, you know, that that fits recovery theater. That fits us. And I said, that that's a that's a nice venue. So we just kept talking and and kind of interfacing and kind of playing around with it. And um, I kind of kind of lost track for a minute. But he uh, he pulled this together. And I said, you know what? I'll I'll be a part. I'll be a part because in the growth process. Recovery is really discovery. That's all it's about. I mean, you need to keep trying to evolve and take yourself to the next level. And uh, I felt it was only appropriate that I walk walk the talk. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this story that you're telling is it a story that is new to the stage? Um, or have you ad- adapted something we've already seen? No, this is um, completely new material. I don't think mm-hmm. anybody's ever seen it. Uh, only my closest friends know the story. Uh, it's mm-hmm. very personal to me, and it's very intimate. And it took a lot to even decide to put myself out there like that. Mm-hmm. But but I think that it's important for people to know. I think it's important to join the fraternity. There's of uh, uh, brothers and sisters that you know have fought, battled, some won, some lost, and it goes on. Because uh, another friend of mine was asking me, "So you recovered?" No, I'm not recovered. I'm recovering. But I, you know, you don't. I'm not recovered. You know, there's there's. <laughs> When you speak about what I what I really need to recover from, it's it's just you know it takes on uh, it takes on something bigger than you can even comprehend. So um, there's so many different layers to 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 what this story implicates to me, and so it is different. It is new. It has another dimension to me myself, you know. And one thing that I will add that I greatly admire in the telling of these stories is that it takes courage. And you've shown a whole lot of courage in working on uh, the piece that you've worked on. And I just wanted to thank you and say that I admire that from you as well as from the other guys. So courage is really important and significant. Thank you, Thomas. Yeah, and Thomas, you you direct um, uh, Jeffrey in this work. Yes, yes. Um, as he said, we've worked together. We've known each other for um, a long time, and it's been really a pleasure to work with him. And again, in working with him on his piece, piece in terms of the dramaturgy, again, is all of us have so much in us. It's a matter of how do we try to uh, pull some of that out, and what do we want to go public, what do we want to keep private, 
and but keeping a, a, a real clean, clear story. So um, that process has been very good also, and I think people will really uh, get quite a bit out of it. Yeah. yeah, I was wondering, um, uh, Jeffrey, I was just thinking uh, when Thomas mentions courage, I was just thinking about um, I'm sure everyone knows this exercise where um, where you um, you fall and, and the people behind you are supposed to catch you. Yes, right. <laughs> yes, yeah, like I am not doing that. But anyway, I, I admire people <laughs> who do that. <laughs> Well, uh, well I used to do, you might used turn to work away with kids. I used to work with kids, and that was one of uh-huh. the exercises that we did. And mm-hmm. um, I could get you to do it without a problem. I was able to get kids to catch me who were like seven, eight, nine years old. So there is that fear, but there's a way of helping people feel comfortable. And part of the process mm-hmm. of theater is trying to uh, allow that comfort to come out so you can feel that you can trust. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's part of the process, also. Uh, uh, Jeffrey, were you going to say something? I mean, yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, it's kind of like um, you need you need to feel that trust, yeah. but you really <laughs> got to begin to trust yourself. You know, after a while, it begins to. You ever seen that little movie clip of the little baby? Scared to death to get in the water, scared, just crying and kicking, and you know, just going through all these changes. Somebody said, well, why don't you stand up? And the baby stood up, and the water's like three inches tall. You know, some of the things that we create, some of the uh-huh. issues that we create, you know, when you really step back and you take a bird's eye view, they're so small um, as compared to where we are going as a people, as an individual, as on a global. Uh, we're no longer, you know, you can no longer operate as if you are uh, uh, a solo individual you know we're traveling through this thing together you know somebody somebody that somebody misses a turn we're all in the car we all going for a ride so it's real important that we take care of our direction our own direction So the story that that you tell, um, can you tell us a little bit about the story that you're telling um, that no one has that knows unless they really really know you, like your intimate friends. People don't know this story, and why is it called resurrection? I'll say nothing. You'll just have to tune in. <laughs> no, it's a. Uh... <laughs> Resurrection. I mean, the, the title kind of um, changed. It, it morphed. And I think I went through about three or four different titles you know, as, it, as it went through. It just kind of became what it was about. And, um, <clears throat> you know, my story, getting to San Francisco, my experience with the drug and alcohol scene, and what happened. I mean, in some ways, it's a generic story, but in a lot of ways, it's very unique because it's me. And I think that it it just took a it just took and put a face on a lot of uh, experience and un, 
unexplained things about myself. It was very cathartic. That's what I wanted to say. It was very, very cathartic. It was like, at first, I was like, I don't really need to do this. I don't need to do I really don't want to. Okay, all right, I'll help Thomas out. Uh, all right, okay, all right. So, well, and then I started just chipping away at it, and it became more and more, more and more vital to what I needed to say. Um, it, it, it allowed me to look at my history. It allowed me to look at the events in my life that formed and created me. And it was just a very intimate experience. I mean, that's the best I want. I, that's, that's what I want to say in order for you to understand the emotion. Well, there's a few juicy pieces in there, too, now. We got, we got a little juice in there. Well, I'm look, looking forward to it. Um, if we have time, I'm going to circle back, and everyone can maybe give us a, a little taste of, of the work. But we're going to move on uh, to Freddie Lee Johnson, taking care of the long tone. Um, uh, you write in your bio that um, you sentenced to prison at 18, um, and uh, your turning point was joining the San Quentin stage band where um, – you play trumpet and share the stage with legend, with legend Sheila E. When paroled in 1995, um, you became involved with the Harm Reduction Coalition and moved up in the ranks to become the director of policy, twice testifying before the U.S. Congress. Since retiring, um, Freddie Lee Johnson has refocused on his music, um, your performance is in collaboration with the formerly incarcerated People's Performance Project, and uh, and taking care of the long tone was written and performed by you and directed by Mark Kenward. And um, who wanted you to talk a little bit about about this work, uh, taking care of the long tone, and about okay. your art in general, you know, and how it, how central that is to your life. Okay, great. Uh, I want to first of all thank Thomas, you, yourself, Wanda, for uh, providing this opportunity, okay, to uh, to really express this. Um, yeah, taking care of the long tone. Um, the music music has been such a uh, it's just been my life. You know, I started playing trumpet. At 15 years old, uh, walking down the street, I was hitchhiking around the country. I was in Denver, Colorado, and I saw a trumpet in the window. It just reached out and grabbed me, and I went in and I bought it. And uh, just started playing. Did the best that I could do. And, and like, this is really about, really about all the when I look back the mentors that I've had in my life people who just helped me I would not have survived if it were not for people uh, helping me uh, I didn't realize it at the time um, for for instance well let me jump for, let me let me jump ahead here this is why like this the solo performance uh, that I'm involved in now at 71, I'll be 71 this year, I'm just realizing, you know, how many people have mentored me and helped me 
along the way, even in prison. And the long tone, let me uh, talk a little about that. A long tone is when you first, when you warm up and you play your trumpet, your instrument, and you just hold that note. And it's so much in that note. It's just, you know, hold it, you play it pretty, play it, just feel it. And my first teacher, he emphasized that. He said, play the long tone. He said, it's all about the long tone. And that has... uh helped sustain me through the years, even when I, times when I, I stopped playing trumpet to, you know, drug addiction, things of that sort. So this is, to me, this is just another, like, a mentoring program. I really uh, uh, thank Thomas uh, for including me in this. Um, you know, and so I think if, you, if I took some questions, you could help me along and um, maybe explain something a little more. Oh, sure. Well, I remember, I mean, I, I've known your work for a long time because um, we have a, a mutual friend, and, and you were a part of his play that he wrote about the uh, the hunger strike in, in the California state prisons. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and then uh, you were doing some work with a theater group out of the marsh, and everyone in this theater group, I think, um, had a history um, with law enforcement. I'm not talking about a good history. <laughs> you know, like, it mm-hmm. was, yeah, it was the kind right. of history like, oh, I'm so happy I'm done with that. And and you you performed um, parts of this work, um, and, I, and I had an opportunity. You, like, sent, I, I, I made some comments, and then you sent me, you know, some work to read. I'm like, oh, this is so good. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And and just you know the way you write characters, you know your mom and your siblings, and and how you know you thought you really could play, and 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 you know in this wonderful um, community that you became a part of as an artist, as a young artist, and you like you mentioned the mentors. So is this the story? Is this the same story um, in another iteration, continuing? Because I know you you've been working on it for a minute. Um, this particular piece that you're going to be performing, is this um, like, is this this is this it? Like, <laughs> is this the work that yes, you've been working this, on? This is, yeah, this is the work that that I've been uh, working on, and things mm. just keep on unfolding. You know, yes. it just keeps unfolding, and it's um, mm. and but I just like to emphasize, without the people, without mm-hmm. the uh, programs I've been involved with, the formerly incarcerated people's uh, performance project and with with what Thomas is providing, with with uh, the black men embracing our life, things of this sort with yourself. Um, that's why I sent you the, um, the piece, you know, to get you, because I really respect your your opinion. This This is what sustains me. This is what keeps me going, living, and kept me alive. So this mm-hmm. is the this is the same piece. Um, nice, yeah. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah. Well, um, I remember, you know, in our in our dialogue going back and forth, you know, we sort of talked about some of these 
these voices. And we talked about, you know, you're being a young, I mean, it's really great, you know, when when you get to revisit a young self in the arts, like you can write your character like, okay, well, I can't physically go back there, but I can definitely go back there in the arts. So I could be me again in that period, you know, and, and have some insight that I didn't have when I was 16 or 14 or 15. And and I think you write about addiction, um, and you also write about brutality, like it was really violent, and, and how that really impacted you. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, Thomas mentioned courage as a theme, and there are like so many themes running through your piece, taking care of the long tone, and it's sort of like how we come to know what is the long tone. I mean, because it is a thing. Um, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, some of these themes, you know, whatever ones you like. I'm thinking addiction. I'm thinking brutality. I'm thinking violence. Because, um, whoa, I mean, your household was like, how did you live through that? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's like so many other people, brothers and sisters, uh, experienced this as well. But come, it was very violent. Uh, household that I grew up in, um, and um, I was scared to death all the time. There's a lot of fighting, a lot of fighting between my mother and my father, and a lot of, I mean, just blood all the time. Just It was just, um, but it became the norm. That's what I knew. That's That's what I knew, and there came one particular time and, and, and let me just say, this. me and my brother, we used to play toy soldiers, and there was always blood around. And we used to play with our soldiers in this blood, you know, and uh, to make it more realistic. And that, that was the norm for us. And I've, I'm also physically challenged, you know, I was uh, uh, born to have one short arm that... Um, that was a medical mishap. You know, they used forceps on me uh, when I was doing birth. So that, I heard my mother one time tell my father, call him a um, a cripple so-and-so, because he had polio. And uh, that was a game changer for me. I just, I said, well, how does, how do you look at me? You know, uh, and I left. And I, around 10, 11 years old, I started shooting dope. I started, I, I had a heroin habit. And uh, from there, I just started, I just started traveling and hitchhiking around the country. And I ended up in Berkeley, California, a whole different world, you know, different world, hippie. You know, the community, people, you know, um, activism, so on and so on. And that led to, you know, and things that I, I ended up in prison, ended up in San Quentin. And I think the point I want to make is all these things happening, I'm realizing that this without planning this that I'm coming back and I stayed here let me just say I stayed in California I came from New York stayed in California until I was 30 years old and I went back to New York but I'm back here in California I'm back and forth to New York 
and I'm doing something positive. It wasn't planned this way, but I had the opportunity to do something positive with my life and helping other people. And a lot of it is through performance, solo performances, because the uh, previous show that I was involved in is called Solitary Man. Uh, it was written mm-hmm. by Charlie Hinton. And, um, yeah, and, and it was, I said, well, I'm back here doing something positive. Um, and it's just been happening without planning. It's been happening like this all over the United States, coming back to New York. So, and without this, without this um, mentoring and people reaching out and helping me, this wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible because, I mean, talk about forgiveness and redemption. I mean, at times I still feel like I, sh- I shouldn't even be on the streets at this point in my life. That, you know, a lot of people, that I've been blessed. So I just try to do whatever it is that I could do to help other people. So... But um, your questions would be would, would help me because I'm kind of all over the place right now. Hey, Wanda. Yeah. Uh huh. Wanda, one of the things yes. that Freddie mentioned that Freddie mentioned that's I find characteristic in all the you know the guys that I'm working with is this yes. sense of wanting to give back. Hmm. That is so you know critical and crucial and so good, and um, uh, I, I find that as a, as a theme. I just mm-hmm. want to share that. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm going to circle back, uh, Freddie, um, because um, I want to give Vernon a chance to share. Um, sure. I hear my echo. But I, I really am looking forward to, to seeing where the work is now. I would just, uh, as you all were, because you, you – um, it was a two, I think it was two weeks or three weeks. Anyway, every time, you know, you would have an opportunity to do some more writing and then you would do the work again and like to see, and so it's like, oh, what changed this week? That was, that was so <laughs> wonderful. And then, and then seeing the works in juxtaposition, which is really nice, um, the way that Afro Solo is also set up is that the work, all of your work is sort of in juxtaposition to one another, but there's also a synergy there uh, in the storytelling um uh there there's a community there among you in the storytelling because you all all share something in common um you know the obvious <laughs> you know that you you know you're wearing the same gender and you're wearing the same skin um uh but then some of your experiences also overlap so so that's really wonderful so Vernon you've been really patient mm-hmm. and and your piece is called my name is Vernon <laughs> and you're a native yeah. San Franciscan as well, and um, yes, and you and you wanted to know more about your family history, and and I know you as an actor in the SF Bay Area, and I didn't know you had been doing this for 25 years. You are so phenomenal. You were last seen as Bono in Fences. Love Bono. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> he is. He is not yeah. the man to to like say yes to things that are not right, even though he loves loves his friend. Um and, and the bono uh that you played, the bono character in Fences, 
uh, August Wilson's uh, Fences at Lorraine Hansberry Theater um, is where that was produced. And and you also played uh, Duke in Cinderella. And and people know you and African American Shakes in Cinderella. You have a history. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, really actually, it, it, actually, the, the last time I was in um, Cinderella, I played the Duke, mm-hmm. but. David Skillman and I were the first um, evil stepsisters in Cinderella mm-hmm. when we did it at the Palace of Fine Arts mm-hmm. years ago. Yep. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know. classic, mm-hmm. classic. I mean, you are unparalleled yeah. as a, the stepsister, you and David Skillman. Yeah. It's like hands down, like yeah. everyone is like studying. How do we do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And actually, I've been on stage 40, 40 plus years. Whoa, really? Yeah, I did my very first show at the um, at the Bayview Opera House with mm. uh, Ruth Williams back in the uh, late seventies when wow. she was alive, and that's that's why you know they they rededicated the theater after her. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yeah. Tell us about her. We we don't know her. Some of us. Yeah, well, she was she was very big in in the uh, Baby Hunters Point community back in the seventies. Uh, she was a, I guess an activist or, or whatever. She did a lot of a lot of things. Her and um, I think Miss Middleton and some other ladies. You know, um, I can't think of the lady's name, but she has a street named after her up in Hunters Point. You know, mm-hmm. so. They were really big in the community, and I came up at a time where the the Black Panthers, you know, had the uh, free meals at the Bayview Opera House back in the day, um, before the riots when Third Street was almost black owned and operated during that time. But after the riots, you know, we destroyed our own properties and stores and. Uh, a lot of the black um, businessmen couldn't recover, you know, and that's when the other people came in and bought up the property, and now that's how why you have, you know, stores that's not black-owned and operated. Bell's mm-hmm. Cleaners, I believe, is still there. They had a record store, too, and he's probably one of the um, only people left you know, business owner from that time. But, you know, theater to me is is what got me out of my addiction. You know, I was addicted to cocaine um, at one time, and and I lost my job and everything. You know, I was a functional addict in the beginning, but then, you know, that didn't last too long. It became a problem. And so I lost my job, and I was out of work for for many years. And I was watching a program on Channel 9 with Gregory Hines, and, you know, he was talking about how how the stage made him feel, you know, after the shows and people clap and give you all the accolades and everything. And I had drugs on me, and I threw the drugs in the toilet, flushed them, you know, went to sleep on a French floor, cried all night, woke up the next day, did the Toyota kick, 
looked in the paper for an audition, got an audition, audition, got a part, and from then on, you know, uh, I believe the stage saved my life. Hmm. Wow. Wow. What What was that first um, performance? What was that first role that you um, auditioned for? That that it um, was. It was a musical, and it was from the, these people from Los Angeles. Um, can't remember the show, but we did it at at uh, USF. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, because I, I sing also, you know, with um, Jeffrey and the in the San Francisco Recovery Theater, we we do music as well. And mm-hmm. from then, you know, uh, I, I just kept going. You know, worked with with the um, Full Circle Theater with Donald Lacey, you know, mm-hmm. the um, African-American Shakespeare and uh, mm-hmm. Sherry and Lorraine Hansberry with um, with uh, Stanley and Quentin and, you know, Jeffrey. And, and now I'm working with Thomas. And, and I met Thomas about a year and a half ago through Jeffrey. You know, mm-hmm. and I'm glad to be a part of this program. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I met yeah. you some. I met you years ago. You you've really given me some uh, good reviews, and I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, well, you're you're a great actor, great performance well, artist. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah. So you mentioned um, in what I'm reading about the work is that. Um, uh, you got you got a really different kind of name, and you wanted to know as a young person um, why the names of your grandparents and great grandparents are unknown to you. And something happened. There's like there's like a story there, you know. Um, yeah. And so, I was wondering how do how do you weave this um, this name um, identity question? With recovery and theater, is all of that in in the piece? My name is Vernon. Yes, most of it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I found out that my my last name is Portuguese. It's a Portuguese oh. name, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, my mother passed away of cancer before she made fifty, and I've really never had a chance to really ask her, you know, or my father, you know, about where the name came from, you know. Uh, since they're both deceased, so I guess that's something I'll I'll, I'll never know because I, I never really met my father's side of the family because they were from Texas and every time they went to Texas I was always performing, so mm. uh, it, it, it'll be unknown until the day I got die I, I suppose. Mm. Are the people are your family in in Texas? Are they deceased too? I never knew them, so oh, you, you don't know, even know how to get in touch with them. Oh, no, not not at all. You know, oh. mm-hmm. not at all. I, I never met any of my relatives from Texas. Hmm. My sister did, but you know, she passed away as well. She died of cancer, and she never lived to see fifty either. Uh, mm-hmm. Can I jump in for just a second? Um, yes, um, Vernon, you might check with. Uh, some of the uh, ancestry programs, because uh, through my research, there's a lot 
that you may be able to find out about your relatives going through uh, uh, some of the programs that you can do online. I don't know if you had a chance to do any uh, genealogical mm-hmm. studies, but you may find some cousins that, you know, are looking for you. Um, so yeah. I, would, I hope you don't give up on the idea because the possibility may exist that you may be able to find some. Oh, and with that name, and with that name, it, mm-hmm. it's uh, pretty. Uh, you know, that's an unusual name. So you probably you may get a lot of hits on the name. Yeah, it's not a lot of Madeiras. I met right. some of the Madeiras in 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 San Francisco. Okay. And I met I met a Madeiras who used who has a bar. I don't know if she still owns it across the street from the Black Repertory Group Theater. Wow. You know she. She was a Madeiras. I went in and I, I talked to her. But only one of the Madeiras that, that I uh, had talked to, you know, knew my dad. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just wanted to throw that little tidbit in. Go ahead, Juan. Oh, oh, no, that's, oh no, that's fine. That's fine. Wow, this is going to be really, really exciting. Um, And, and also, um, I, um, uh, you know, I think I, I don't know if I met you, uh, I think I might have met you at one of the Cinderella um, performances because they, they they they've all been so outstanding. But I I mm-hmm. I, I saw you often, um, you know, at uh, Lewis Campbell's uh, multi-ethnic theater because you're like one of the yes. one of the company um, members, uh, you know, yes. of of that particular theater. Yeah, Actually, I'm gonna yeah. be going to Lewis's house as soon as I hang up. We hang up. I'll be at his house. Today. Oh, nice, nice. How mm-hmm. is Lewis? Lewis is fine. He's 88 years old right now. Mm-hmm. You know, he lost his wife, so oh. uh, I, I I I spend four days a week with him. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're we're working on a, a a show that's supposed to open sometime in August, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Okay. So, you know, I just uh, try to make sure he's okay, you know. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, good man. Um, give him my condolences. Yeah. Okay. So, so Verna, we're going to move on to Thomas and uh mm-hmm. because um Thomas has I've I've seen um I've seen the work uh um I think at least twice. Um The Liberation yeah. of Elroy, uh Courage Under Fire, The Liberation of Elroy and and it, it has changed every time I've seen it. It's something different, like you've just yeah. did. But yeah. even if you left it the same, I wouldn't mind seeing it again because it's such a great story. Um, well, and I, I think if, yeah, but also I think, you know, it sort of really complements, um, you know, the uh, the the, the uh, week one, um, you know, program one, you know, Black Men Embracing Our Light, um, and then and then the, for the second um, week to be, this work that you have um, written and, and you perform, Thomas, is a really, really, really nice uh, pairing of, of uh, you know, programming. It's sort of really yeah. the work complement one another in a real yes. rich way. Yes, I agree. And one thing I like to share that some people ask, well, are there are there four different, sh- four or five different shows? I want people to know <laughs> that on the first week they will see uh, four performances. Um, mm-hmm. And there will be one show, and then the second week I will be doing my piece, which, as I, you said, is about my family, and I have uh, worked with the dramaturge, 
to uh, bring out a little bit more of the character. Of if people don't know, it's about a barber and what a barber told me that led me on the uh, on a, uh, a mission to find out more about my family, particularly my father. And right. she mentioned that the the barber needed to be fleshed out a little bit more, so I've tried to do that and tried to uh, add some more specificity to it. So, yes, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of yeah. the things that, as I said, talked about the barbershop, one of the things mm-hmm. I've added is barbershops are, have been very important in, you know, black men's lives because it's one place mm-hmm. we can often gather and have a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I talk about the first, my first memory of going to a barbershop by myself when I was mm-hmm. about seven years old. This was not a barbershop. It was in a man's house in Nashville in his living room. He had been cutting hair for years and years and years. And this was around 1958, 59. And he didn't have electrical uh, clippers. He had those uh, clippers where you kind of clip them together, manual clippers. And what we mm-hmm. used to clip hair, just watching that. And when I went in, my brother was there getting his hair cut. And he was, he's like seven years older than me. And I thought, oh, great, when he gets out, he'll wait for me. We have a good walk back home. But when he got out of the chair, he left. And I was so mm-hmm. sad, like, you left me. And later on, I asked him, you know, why did you leave me? You saw me there. I thought we could walk home together. And he told me something that I've never forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, my family calls me Tommy. He said, Tommy, time waits for no one. And uh, the profoundness of that has sort of stuck with me just in terms of the cycles of life and uh, the reality of that. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Your brother should have waited for you, whatever. He should have waited for you. You were like a little kid, seven years. It's your first time getting a haircut. He should have waited for you. Um. He probably had a date or something, you know. There's a big difference, you know, between seven and 14, 15, whatever his age was. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, yeah. But uh, I've never forgotten that experience. Right. Well, it's a really good thing that you knew how to get home from from the the barber's house. Yeah. But, Thomas, do you want to tell the audience a little bit more, like, sort of, um, because this story is also a civil rights story in your family. Like, your family is like, they did so much, and, 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 you know, and you've got, you've got, I think your sister, um, like, they, they did stuff that, you know, appears in newspapers and, and some of these more well-written histories of our people. Yeah. And the reason why people have certain rights now is because of what happened in your family and what sacrifices yeah. your siblings made, particularly your yeah. sister. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, the the genesis of the story is that I'm from Nashville. I moved to San Francisco. I went back to Nashville a number of years later to get my hair cut at a barbershop. And when I was there, um, having spoken to the, you know, talked to the barber and got caught up on lots of things that were happening, he leaned in and told me that he was very upset with my father. And I'm thinking, how can you be upset with my father? My father's been dead for 25 years. And what he told me was stunning to me because what, I, what he told me was made me feel fantastic about my father. So I decided to go back into his history to kind of see where that came from. So I 
trace it back four generations. My great-grandfather was a slave to his father, to my father, to my generation. And in my generation, it was uh, uh, during the late 60s and 70s, civil rights. And one of, the, one of my sisters was one of the Freedom Riders, so we have a lot of emphasis on that. And we have, an, have another sister who did a lot of uh, uh, protesting and marching in Nashville. And one time she told me that she walked by a couple of police beating uh, a black guy, and we thought that that she was, I thought she told me, thought she was being hysterical. But we found the photo, exactly that. Mm-hmm. But most recently, she, uh, I mean, she told me a long time ago that she had been uh, beaten by the police and that she was, you know, harmed and that uh, they told her she may not be able to have any kids and she, has, she wasn't able to have any kids. But what one of my sisters found about seven months ago was a guy who has a photo of her being put on the gurney when she was beaten by the police. So we've got that documentation. Now, uh, one of the things that the documentation says is that, oh, she fainted because she had a heart problem, which gets into what we deal with today in some ways, collusion between the police, the press, this, that, and the other, to not tell the truth. So um, what I'm really trying to do, I haven't been able to do this yet, is go to the, uh, because of the pandemic, go to the, um, the hospital where she was treated, which was in Nashville, one of the black Mahara hospital, and see if we can get her records for that day of what she was treated for. You know, this was back in 1964, so they may or may not be available, but that's, I'm on a mission to see if I can get those records. Does that make sense? Wow, that would be really wonderful. And yeah. I have a photo of her on the gurney, which I'll have in this show. Mm, nice, nice. Wow. Well, I'm really looking forward to uh, seeing that. And, you're, and that particular um, week two starts, um, let's see, where are my notes? Uh, well, you know, Thomas, what I'm looking for. When does week two start? Okay. Yeah, program one, program one is the ninth. Um, through the 13th, and then mm-hmm. the week, um, the uh, second program is, oh, here it is, right, the 17th through the 20th, and um, and the 20th is, is actually Father's Day. So um, I, know, I know that was intentional um, because what's really wonderful about, about your work, Thomas, is how um, you get to know your father and, and, and understand why he did things that he did that you didn't understand prior right. to your return home. Um, right. Yeah, right. yeah, which is really and nice. Understanding, and even understanding some things that he did do uh, a little bit better. Uh, right. Because mm-hmm. of his growing up in Jim Crow period of time. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned right. that he was of the era that, you know, black people could not look white people in the face without mm-hmm. the potential harm of being killed. So I never mm-hmm. saw him look a white man in the face. Right. Um, yeah. Which, of course, infuriated me, you know, growing up as a teenager. But mm-hmm. my knowledge now is that if he didn't, he may not have lived. Mm-hmm. Right, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, so it's going to so be what, a really 
Oh, One sorry. thing I want to share also is that what we're doing may be, you know, reach further than what we think. And I say mm. that because I got an email or a text from someone last night who was soliciting my help to help them raise money for a show that she would like to produce. And the mm. show she would like to produce is that she had a son, and the son wound up being a gay kid. The mm. father did not approve of that and killed the kid. Oh, my goodness. And the father's in prison, and she doesn't want mm. his life and his name to be forgotten, so she wants to do a play as well as uh, a video of his life story. And she's asking me uh, ideas on how to raise funds for that. So I'm like, wow. So as mm-hmm. I say, we never know how far we might be reaching or touching people, or as I said, mm-hmm. opening windows. Uh, and my other goal for this is I'm hoping that when people hear or see or learn about this, is that will give mm-hmm. them some curiosity about their families so they might go and do some genealogical work mm-hmm. about their history. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All of these stories um, are definitely, you know, mining, um, you know, the family, and 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 you know, sort of mining it for for wellness, you know, mining it for healing, mm-hmm. uh, mining it for forgiveness, mining mm-hmm. it to like take the good and leave the leave what doesn't serve you, you know, because mm-hmm. all of you all are are mature, um, mm-hmm. you know, men, and and so. Um, so you're able to you've lived a little bit and so you you know from trial and error uh in your lives that certain things work better than other things and so um you know storytelling is something that's a really good way to sort of pass on the medicine so to speak <laughs> yeah. um so I wanted to give everyone an opportunity um, to have some closing words um it's okay that we ran over I hope I haven't run into any of your plans for um for this morning but if you want to, like, uh, in a couple of minutes, um, sort of, you know, um, share closing a closing thought, you can share something from from your play if you like. So we're gonna we're gonna start with you, uh, Larry Griffin, Mr. Griffin, um, since you were the first person. Well, you know, uh, uh, you know, I also want to thank Thomas and the rest of the guys. Man, we all recovering addicts. And what this did for me, you know, one of the things of, of being a recovering, per, a recovering addict, uh, they suggest that you get a sponsor and work the steps, right? For di- this particular uh, 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 writing, for me, was step work, right? And, uh, uh, and I wrote a lot of stuff, but I never wrote about this part of my life until I got with Thomas. So this was like step work for me. This, this was like a, like an inventory, like step four in inventory. And I never, this stuff never came up until, you know, Thomas hit, Tom, Thomas hit a nerve, and I, and, I, and, I, and I thought about that. Well, first time in jail, damn, what was that? Oh, wow, I was a kid. Totally thought about that stuff. So this was uh, uh, growth. You know, but then it was a, in that same time period, it was some more stuff around adults being cruel to me. It was a couple more other uh, stuff that happened. So that's what that that was. Uh, you know, I was some uh, some work for me. Yeah. 
That's it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. And uh, Jeffrey? Are you still with us, Jeffrey? You may have had to uh, step. Sorry out. about that. I was on. No, okay. I was on mute. Okay. Okay, running my mouth. Anyway. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I was just. Gonna say, yeah, I was just talking away. I was just saying that you know. You know, having produced a lot of shows, and done uh, theater in San Francisco in the Bay Area, and. Um, currently locked in a in a serious battle to reclaim black theater in the in San Francisco because you know it is a battle we're having having a lot of problems you know everybody's struggling especially coming out of the pandemic but anyway you know it just became very personal on so many levels and um you know we always talk about taking the time to you know, peel the layers back, as Larry was saying, you know, like the fourth step. This gave another dimension to to being able to really self-reflect and to share it, share it on a platform uh, with, with people that may or may not know, uh, you know, how you got here, how I got here, how we got here. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, that's important to know about your origin stories. Mhm. Yeah, oh yeah. Very important. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Freddie Lee Johnson, uh, some closing reflections. Yes. Um, community, community. I'm telling you, I feel for the first time in a long time, part of the community, community of black folk that are mm-hmm. making the difference. And it gives me, it gives me hope. But I can, uh, being frank with you, many times I had given up hope, you know, mm-hmm. and, there's, and there's so many more stories to tell. And this is encouraging me because to help me um, find the courage to tell some of these stories, to share some of these stories, with the goal being that hopefully we can move forward. And I'll say this and be quiet. I can be long-winded. That um, that there's some things I want to talk about that I'm writing about now. Black conservatives, uh, conservatives, people, black people on on the far right. Uh, things of that sort. Why do we continue to let people? Why did why did people conquer us? You know, uh, things of that sort. And I want to get to the real. This provides me with the opportunity to meet people, run things past people, and ask for help in addressing some of this. And it does not have to be a solo performance. It could be ensembles or whatever. But I want to make a difference that way. So, thank you. Thank you, thank you, everybody. Um, I can't say enough. Mm, that's great, yeah. And then you know, um, with with Thomas's Afro solo, you know, there's a platform because you know, with with Afro solo, it's not that oh, you performed in Afro solo and and that's it. 
um, no, um, I've seen people bring new work to Afro Solo. So this is a really good connect for you, and then you already have the Mars connection. So looking forward to seeing all of your work, but particularly yours, uh, uh, Freddie. Um, yeah, I want to I want to see all these stories in whatever way they show up um, as solo pieces, as ensemble pieces, as you know, work you set on other folks. Um, yeah, yeah, all of you. Um, I'm really excited. Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Vernon. Yes, well, all I have to say is that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of help out out here for for people who need it. All you have to do is accept it, and I'm mm. very excited to be working with Thomas. Yeah, yeah. And Thomas? Well, I'm very excited about um, this year's uh, project. As I said, it's something I've come, wanted to do for a while and mm-hmm. something that I hope to continue to do, and that is, um, although we've done a lot of male voices, bringing male voices together in an event like this has uh, is, is very special for me. Uh, so it's mm-hmm. something I want to continue to do. Right, right, yeah. And, um, you know, these are stories of triumph. I mean, you all are still here. You're not telling a story about an ancestor. Oh, um, well, so, I want to so that's say, really beautiful. I, want, I wanted to share that I have worked with a few of the guys that did not make it. You know, oh. um, I've had a couple of guys who, uh, who've, uh, you know, OD'd, basically, that they weren't able mm. to stay on track. And that was mm. very, very difficult and very, very sad. And, I mean, I was still a little bit guilty about it. Uh, and that's why I also praise these guys for being able to, you know, uh, get to where they are because it's not mm-hmm. easy, and I understand that. Mm-hmm. And and so, Thomas, how do people um, get tickets? How do they register so they don't miss well, the performances? Do you know, make the is, we're in the process of updating our website, and hopefully I'll uh-huh. have that done by the end of this week. Uh, they can go to our Afro Solo uh, Facebook page. I have information on there, and mm-hmm. we'll be doing a number of more interviews. But um, they can get through with our website after this week, and with our Facebook mm-hmm. page, and through communication such as this. Okay, sure. Because I'm um, I, I'm reading that the festival is going to take place on demand via Afro Solo's yeah. YouTube channel. Yeah. So yeah. um. So they just need to put, you know, because I know you have a Facebook site as well. So they just go yeah. to Afro Solo, um, the Facebook site, um, or to your website, or, or either one. The Facebook site at this point. Okay. All right. Okay. So it's just uh, Facebook at Afro Solo, A F R O, and then S O L O. They can just look up Afro Solo Theater Company, and it will pop okay. up. Okay. Okay, great. Is there a phone number or anything? Would I like they can call me phone call? If, um, <laughs> since we're doing the pandemic right now, they can call me at my home number, which is 415-346-9344. Okay, and do you want to give an email address? Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S, at afrosolo, A-F-R-O-S-O-L-O dot org. Okay. All right, great. Okay, super. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for this marvelous conversation, and I'm looking forward to seeing the work and 
And uh, yeah, continue, um, you know, continue the writing and performances, and please, you know, keep posted on what you're up to so I can support you um, in the work and also attend. All right, thank you very, very much, also, Wanda. We I just greatly appreciate what you do for Afro Solo, but for the community at large. Uh, you're quite welcome. You all take good care. All right, bye-bye. All right, thank you, you take Wanda. care. Thanks a lot. Oh, you're bye-bye. Welcome. All right, thank bye. you. Blessing. You're welcome. Bye-bye. So I want to give a couple of announcements. I was trying to broadcast um, uh, the Legacy um, Film Festival interviews I had with, I think, uh, um, well, uh, director, subject teams, as well as the um, the founder of the Legacy um, um, Legacy um, Film Festival on Aging, which started Monday the 24th and it continues through this coming Monday the 31st, and it is a virtual film festival. And the interview were so was, the interviews were so nice, um, but I I can't seem to get it up. Um, so I'm going to have to play something else and and broad, rebroadcast this at another point. Maybe maybe I'll just have a special broadcast maybe on Thursday. Um, but definitely, you know. Um, Run, don't walk uh, to to be able to take advantage of. I think there's like 48 films this particular festival, and and the way that you um, you get uh, tickets for the programs is you go to Legacy Film Festival on Aging dot org. Legacy Film Festival on Aging dot org, and um, and the programs are eight dollars per program, or you can just Pay fifty dollars for all the films, and and they are marvelous. And they have different; they're grouped by themes, and um, and and the work is is just superb. Um, it's really superb. The longer films um, are like seventy one to seventy three minutes, but that's you know, but most of them uh, are around forty forty minutes. Yeah, the longer ones are about seventy so or so minutes, but um yeah they're really great they've got films that are grouped in uh civil rights um uh grouped according to caring and as many dimensions you know younger people taking care of their parents uh adaptation you know sort of how you change um you know when you get older sort of the things you have to you know adjust to courage against hate elder voices um is one of the films in this one um a film that i uh, yeah, there's another one called Forever Voters about the League of Women Voters, um, and uh, and then there's another called Johnson's List, and then there's Fun and Games. Um, yeah, just really in the memory, reframing disability, uh, uh, Savior Traditions, which some of these films are about food, uh, Legacy Shorts, Fresh Views of Later Life. Um, really great, and uh, those are really cute. And so anyway, again, um, just go to LegacyFilmFestival.onaging.org and um, get your tickets. You don't want to miss the festival. And um, what else is going on? There's a whole lot happening um, because this is uh, Memorial Day weekend coming up, long weekend. So 
there's a lot going on, and um, uh, there's a lot going on virtually, literally. <laughs> a lot of festivals, a lot of, um, lot of, lot of um, webinars, and things like that. And I'm going to try to, you know, sort of keep some things up, keep on adding some things to uh, Wanda's Picks. Uh, dot com, but I am so not not caught up. So you're gonna have to just visit some of those sites that you know where things are. And KQED is one of those sites. Um, and uh, and San Francisco Bayview dot com is another one of those sites where you can look on the calendar and see what's going on. And um, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I am going to play an interview from the archives that uh you haven't heard in a while. And it's um it's uh Ben Vereen and uh, he was at the Raz Room back in two thousand twelve and you know Ben Vereen was in Roots and uh you know Juneteenth is coming up and I didn't know did you know that um, James Weldon Johnson was born on Juneteenth, June nineteenth, and this would have been this year would have been his centennial birth. It's like, wow. Who would have known, right? And um so this Juneteenth is gonna be really special, particularly here in the San Francisco Bay Area, um there's gonna be um a big program uh in uh Golden Gate Park. Um where 350 uh, ancestors are going to, uh, they are sculpted pieces, sculptures, sculptures um, that uh, Dana King has designed, and um, and they are going to be literally holding space um, to honor um, our legacy as people of African descent in this nation, and it's called monumental reckoning. And it's going to be 5 o'clock on June 18th, that Friday. And, um, and if you want information about it, you can, um, you can go to Monumental Reckoning. Um, dot, I'm not sure if it's dot .com or dot .org. <laughs> um, but just put in Monumental Reckoning and you'll, you'll pull up information about these, um, these sculptures that honor African ancestors. And uh, and then this is this is around sort of reframing um, Africa, the uh, legacy of African people in this particular uh, city and area of of uh, California. And um, I don't know if you all are aware that Francis Scott Key, that particular statue was in Golden Gate Park, and it was taken down last year. And so. To celebrate um, or to reframe um, the legacy of, of people of African descent and to acknowledge our presence, um, there are going to be these these 350 ancestors, as well as the words "lift every voice" um, um, lit up on the place where the statue came down. So. Uh, we're asking people of African descent to wear white, bring your families, and uh, for, and for everyone to come, you know, to the to the opening of this this wonderful um, wonderful ceremony, um, which honors you know the African heritage here in this nation, 
specifically in San Francisco Bay Area, San Francisco, San Francisco Bay Area. So, so anyway, um, just want to give you that heads up so you can put that in your date book. Oh, and the um, for the second year, we're going to have a virtual Libations for African Ancestors on June 12th, and it's going to be um, if you go to rememberTheAncestors.com, you can find our information. You can also uh, Facebook at Remember the Ancestors. Um, We'll also give you information. It's going to start at 8:30, and it's going to be broadcast in. Um, it's going to be broadcast live that way, as well as in other other formats. But just to find out information about it, you could go there, and you can also, of course, visit WandasPicks.com. Um, and I think <laughs> I think I've given you all the announcements that I have right in this moment, and and so now I'm going to um, to play this interview with. Um, Ben Vereen, but I always like I always like starting with his his piece, Defying Gravity, um, because um, we can't let anything hold us down or hold us back because our ancestors didn't. So um, even even with a natural phenomenon, we have to def- we have to like resist that too. Like no, we're not going to let anything hold us down. So this is Defying Gravity, and then we're going to move right into this interview with Ben Vereen. Thanks for joining us today. Peace and blessings. Wicked. I went into the show with Shoshana Bean, and each night I'd hear Shoshana sing this song. I'd like to do it for you now. Something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep. It's time I trust my instincts. Close my eyes and leave. Try defying gravity. I think I'll try defying gravity, and you can't hold me down. I'm through accepting limits because someone said they're so. Some things I can never change, but till I try, I'll never know. So tired of being afraid of losing love. I thought I had lost. Well, if that's love, it comes at much too high a cost. I'd rather buy defying gravity. Yes, I will try defying gravity. And you can't hold me down. Just had a vision, almost like a prophecy. Oh, I know this may sound crazy, and it's true, the vision is hazy, but I swear 
like to know that is so cool well gosh um hmm maybe we should uh talk about what's bringing you out here to san francisco you've got a a new cd and you've got a new show and maybe you could tell us about what you're bringing to the raz room uh june 12th what i'm bringing to the raz room yeah yeah what a great this (laughs) Mm -hmm. of course give us some details <laughs> Who? Because I think you're bringing a band, right? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. And some new material. Yes, yeah, some new material, and you know, I'm working on a, a show that I'm taking to Broadway. Mm. So, so I'll be working on that there, and so it's going to be exciting. Oh, so you're going to test it out on us? That's great. We love mm-hmm. that. Okay, so you're going to be, um, I believe, um, sort of bringing uh, back some some old favorite tunes and some honoring some of your favorite goodies. folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oldies but goodies, yeah. Oldies but goodies. You know, <laughs> people that you know that we grew up with and have touched my life. You know, people I've worked with. Mm-hmm. You know, Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra. You know, people yeah. like that. Bob Fosse, Tom O'Horgan. You know, and hair. I did hair, matter of fact, right there in San Francisco. You did. Walpium Theater. Yeah. Wow. I came up some time ago, and I found I discovered a guy named Michael Philip Thomas. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he did. He was doing burgers. So I hired him in Los Angeles, and uh, he hurt his back. And so they called me to come to the Opium Theater to cover for him. Mm-hmm. And that's when we, you know, we really got to be good friends years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I was at the On Broadway Theater where there's no place to be somebody. Charles Gardone's play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so San Francisco and I have a history. Yeah. I lived in Berkeley for a while. You did. Yes, I did. Wow. Matter of fact, there was a guy named Wasserman, I believe. And uh, he wrote an article on me. I did my first concert at the On Broadway Theater hmm. in those years. Yeah. And got my launch there. Really? Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Wow. So, <laughs> so you have some dear memories of the Bay Area. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Oh, that's dear, funny. Dear, dear memories. <laughs> wow, that is so awesome. I was reading your lovely, but I just love that caricature of you on your on your website. It's so cute. Well, thank you. Thank and then you. your photographer, you got some great photographs, you know, when they're sort of, um, you know, going through the, um, you know, sort of showing you the different different looks of Ben Vereen. Yes, yes. <laughs> Those are really Thank nice, you. too. And you've gotten, like, what, 10 doctorates? <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, well, you're That's like, cause, yeah, wow, I was like, mm, so wonderful. And I was looking at one was from um, the Megar Evers College there in, in um, Megar Evers, yes. Yeah. Is that in Brooklyn? No. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is Brooklyn, right. Mm-hmm. And they sponsor... Um, a, uh, a ritual every year, the second Saturday in June, it's called um, Libations for the Ancestors, and it's an international pouring for our ancestors that uh, died or made that passage, you know, during the uh, the European slave trade. And um, really, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, and so, and it's a really well, old I'm celebration. I'm honored. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I thought, wow, how fitting, um, you know, sort of looking at, you know, your your really famous role in, in Roots, and I was watching some of the segments on Oprah's um, website. And, oh, yes, when we did the reunion. Yeah, yeah, and, and the part yeah. where you talked about how you really wanted to be in the, 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 uh, the film and, and how your agent was saying, well, you know, you're a song and dance man. They need an actor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That was yeah, funny. I, I fired him. Oh, good. good. You need someone with vision, someone with yeah. vision for it's sure. Exactly. Mhm. Exactly. Yeah, and so I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, I was thinking one of we could start with, you know, that Chicken George character um, uh, and um, and sort of, you know, your preparation, you know, within your life for that role uh, as the child of, of, of a rape and um, and then, you know, sort of being known by that, uh, you know, that bird, the chicken, the chicken which is used to venerate the ancestors and, mm. and you know, sort of stands for, you know, life, you know, fertility because oh, every look day. At look at you. Look at you. You've got it all down. You don't need this to be Just write it. <laughs> Well, you might not agree with me, you know. Thank you, my queen. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, but I just thought about, you know, sort of the whole renewal. And then and then within your personal life, um, you know, finding out that you have another family mm-hmm. after having that the one. Wonderful... That was until later yeah, in years. My, mm-hmm. my baby daughter, Quran, mm-hmm. came to me one day and said, Dad, you know, you know, Mom has her history, but we don't, you know, you and that's it mm. and I decided to go for my search it's interesting that I did roots and I really didn't have any knowledge of my past until you know I went to Europe uh, with Sammy Davis Jr. and uh, he said you know you have to get a passport and I went down to get a passport and I found out that I wasn't who I was mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and that's when I my search began you know so for me doing roots was really interesting because I was doing a part of a, a story about legacy but I hadn't found mine Mhm. Right. Yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. So it was quite overwhelming. It was quite overwhelming. Mhm. Right. So, yeah, I was wondering. So when you when you um like you have it sounded like you had a wonderful you know childhood and and family that raised you um 
Oh, you did. I did. Most yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. Love personified. Mm-hmm. You know, it was interesting because when I when I found this out, the woman who raised me, Pauline Barine, mm-hmm. uh, she uh, when I found it out and I came back from Europe and I looked at her, and she was really taken by this whole discovery because she would never wanted me to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I looked at her and I told her, I said, "You're the only mother I know. You're the only eyes I saw when I looked up. You know, so you're my mother." You know, mm-hmm. and so we left it that way. That's what she came and she told me what had happened. You know, and uh, she told me about my mother. And uh, when my daughter said, "You know, Dad, we got to find you know who your people are," and uh, we went looking. Mm-hmm. And I found them about uh, oh four years ago, five years ago now. Oh, it's been that recent. Yes, it's been that recent. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. okay. And this one interesting thing, and I'm writing it in my book, is that they lived an hour. My mother, my original mother, lived an hour away from me, but she didn't know who I was. She went looking for me. Mm. And uh, when you know, in 1946, when you say you go to the police and say you know I've lost a child, they weren't interested. You know, I'm supposed oh. to be an African American woman. You know, mm. so she stayed there two years looking for me. Wow. And um, and then she went to she lived in Connecticut. One hour away from me. So hmm. you got to read the book because it's very interesting about how we got back together. Yeah. She's no longer with us, of course. Right, yeah, yeah, she passed. Um, yes. That's, that's amazing. Um, yeah, and so how how did your mother, you know, your your mother, you know, f- who raised you, how did she, how did they find you? Uh well, it's a, it's a couple of stories. One is that my mother, um, it's in the book. <laughs> yes, read the book. <laughs> okay, okay. I will, I will yes, totally read. I'm not one of those people. You tell me the punchline and I don't listen yeah, to the joke. Yes, she, you, t- um, you tell me the ending and I will still read the book. Don't worry. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. Well, what happened was, was supposedly my mother, um, my, my birth mother, yes. was, uh, they met one, and in a storm. And um, she was my supposedly according to the story I got that she was homeless, mm-hmm. and uh, my mother took her to the woman who raised me took her to her her uh, apartment, mm-hmm. and uh, after I was born she was sent the woman left, but that wasn't the story that I found out, mm-hmm. and um, so when I found out that the, my mother actually left her left her with friends there, she left me with friends in in Miami, and went back to look at my sister and brother to take care of her children she had prior to another marriage. And came back and I was gone. Hmm. Oh. So that's okay. that's the story I got from my from my family. From right. Me, you know the mm-hmm. Pearsons. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And and then your character, um, you know, Chicken George, um, you know, he goes away and then he comes back and. Um, he his family and then brings his family to freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then and then he tells his grandson the story of that first African. Right. <laughs> it's like come a full circle, and That's and right. it's and it so marries your real life, doesn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's like, so whoa, what's going on here? You know, the synergy, you know, yeah. the serendipity. You know, what's so interesting is that, you know, how I got that role. Mm-hmm. I mean, out of all the actors, because I wasn't an actor. I'd done Pippin, I'd done Broadway, mm-hmm. but I hadn't done, I hadn't, I hadn't been in any films or anything like that. And it was fortuitous that uh, the producer happened to be in the audience of one of my shows. I used to do a character called Burt Williams, who, you know, was one of our early performers, great stars, mm-hmm. who, you know, suffered the ridicules of prejudice in this country. And, uh, you know, he said, you don't mind being, you know, you know, a black performer. He said, it's been in America, it's an inconvenience. That was his line. Mm-hmm. And so I used to do a parody on him, which I got ridiculed for, you know, but I used to do a parody on him about the ridiculousness of what we had to go through. And I was doing it in Savannah. 
Atlanta, Georgia, and I looked up one day, and there was the producer, Stan Margulies, in the audience. And he saw my Brett Williams, and he came backstage. He said, I want you to be my Chicken George. I didn't know who a Chicken George was or what a Chicken George was. So I hadn't read the book. And I said, yes, because I'd heard about it. Mm-hmm. And then, boom, and I got the role. And it was uh, quite a journey. Right. Quite a journey. To this day, mm-hmm. we still talk about it. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, 30-some-odd years later, we're still talking about it. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, because it was for you. It was definitely for you um, in a lot of ways. I mean, yeah. and it's probably yeah. becoming more and more yeah. apparent why as, as you know, you have, you know, as the years pass and the moments pass, like, wow, yeah. Because I was just thinking about when I when I read that story about Burt Williams and, you know, you're, you're portraying him, and, and I thought about, you know, the minstrel tradition and mm-hmm. and the Scottsboro Boys, you know, mm-hmm. on Broadway, yeah, you know, as yeah. a musical yeah. and reverse minstrel with the black folks wearing white face. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um and then and then I don't know if you know um this uh uh, playwright, which you probably do. Her name is because she's she's in New York, and and you know the folks there. Um, Dale or Orlander Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, she oh, yes. did, yeah. oh, you do know? Okay, well she's she's at Berkeley Rep now, um, doing her Black and Blue Boys, Broken Men. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and um, and I was just thinking about you know your humanitarian work and and your lectures around um, around a lot of a lot of things about sort of things that encourage young people, particularly young men and, and women, who might not have everything they think they need in their lives to be successful, you know, how to, you know, how to be resourceful. Well, it's uh, all within you, isn't it? Mm-hmm, it's just yeah. tapping within you. You know, we look without for everything, but we need to look within because within is all the resources that we need. You know, recently my, my, my last uh, grandchild was born. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name is Moses. And, uh, Moses? And, and, wow. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, my daughter gave me my, my, my baby uh, grandchild. He's two years old. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in the, in the uh, room when he was born and put him in my hands, and I watched the, the pigmentation coming in mm. and it seemed like the spirit was saying if you need me I'll be right in here mm. inside here and we look outside for it but within us is all that we need within us is legacy and we and we teach from within without to go out and then we have our legacy in us and all that we need is in spirit mm. within us you know, and that's what I try to, that's what I try and teach, or that's what I try to teach from when I'm teaching an acting class, so I, you know, teach seminars of, of that nature. Mm-hmm. You know? Right, yeah. But then, you know, you look at, um, you know, characters that uh, Dale um, paints in, in her, her current play that she's performing, and these children, oh my goodness, their parents are so, so broken mm-hmm. that... Mm-hmm. These kids, I mean, they do, they do, you know, they do look within, and mm-hmm. and they, and, and 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 some of them are able to do some really remarkable things. But then, when they become adults, they're still broken. So mm-hmm. then, so then they have flashbacks because of that mm-hmm. trauma. So, so what do you what do you do when the support network is not there to help you realize that you need some help to become truly healed? Mm, that you, that you, you look like you look within yourself, but there's not enough there because you don't have the tools because you're a little kid. <laughs> yes, yes. So around you, you know, I believe that, you know, we're surrounded by angels that support us. Mm. Look, I was a kid from Brooklyn. 
still a kid from Brooklyn, mm-hmm. you know, and in and, 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 and all probability, I should not be who I am today. But one day, I was standing on the street corner, and I'm doing my kid, I'm doing, I'm doing my kid thing. I was about six years old, six, seven years old. Mm-hmm. And this gentleman comes walking down the street, you know, my white brother, you know, comes mm-hmm. walking down the street. Out of all the kids on the block, he points to me, and he says, is your mother home? And he was a, he was a talent scout. Now I was playing stickball. I wasn't dancing or singing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was playing stickball. Yeah. But destiny. Huh. And I went upstairs. My mother said, I want him to go to, to a dance school. She didn't know nothing about the theater. Take him. Mm-hmm. Take him because I want him to have something better than what I've got. And that's how my journey began. It's like, it seems like spirit calls upon that which will make us who we are today if we're open and receptive to it. But how do we teach that to children? When they, you know, they're, going, they're from families that do not have the resources to believe in themselves, to know that it's going to be all right because they've come to the planet to make it better. How do we give them those resources and teach them that? You know, we teach them how to make a living, but we don't teach them how to live. Mm-hmm. You know, churches are doing the best job that they can, you know, by relating, you know, well, you know, things are going to get better, you know, when you get to heaven. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but what about bringing heaven to earth? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what these children come, they bring us heaven by just being here on this earth. They bring a baby, a child born, is heaven on earth. And then we, then we, then we educate them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> enlightening them, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. enlightening them, you know, so <laughs> I, I, I try to, in my teachings, is try to touch that within them to let it express itself, and mm-hmm. from that basis, that's where I, that's where I work when I teach classes, mm-hmm. within, out, not from out, in. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I if you could talk about, you know, your attraction to storytelling um, via performance art and, um, yeah, and, and how you've used, um, you know, um, your personal journey to inform your ethos. To, to, to excuse me? <laughs> to, yeah, your ethos. My ethos? My yeah, ethos. yeah, your ethics. You know, your your principles. You know how? Yeah, because yeah, I mean, you've been, you have a really extensive and long and and very well decorated. You know, as far as all the different kinds of awards one can receive, and mm-hmm. honors one can receive. You know, career, and you're still going strong. I mean, like mm-hmm. seriously. So. You know, a lot of times people don't last in in the business of entertainment because yeah, there are a lot of distractions. I feel blessed. I, feel blessed. Mm-hmm. I, feel, yeah, I have to say it's something greater than myself. Mm. Without myself, I probably wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so something greater than myself makes me get out of bed in the morning. Something greater calls me, mm-hmm. you know, and I just have to give honor to that within me. You know, that, you know, but that which keeps me going, as long as I'm here on this planet called Earth, you know, something within me greater than myself is the reason why I do what I do. And I give honor and praise to that. Call it God, Allah, Jesus, Elohim, Yahweh, whatever you choose to mm-hmm. be divine, it works. Right. Yeah. So this this attraction to storytelling, um, you tell mm-hmm. storytelling, you tell stories. I do. I do. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> yeah. Talk about that that storytelling. I mean, that's that's real basic to to the human, you know, uh, species. You know, Alex Haley was a storyteller. Yeah. You know, I I just tell stories of my life, and hopefully somebody will be inspired. Mhm. And those are the stories that I have to tell, and so I tell from a place of knowing. And in doing so, you know, somebody says, I get it. 
and then I feel that my my job is 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 is, is being done. When I do my show uh, and doing songs, I try to tell the story that is personal to me, and somebody out there is having a similar mm. um, situation, right. and they can go, "Oh, I get it," and and so that's why I love what I do because I'm able to touch people as they touch me. Mm-hmm. It's a give and take sort of show. <laughs> we 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 share. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've had some wonderful mentors. Mm, yes, you have. Along my path, you know. So I'm just, and I, and they're still coming. Mm. They're still coming, you know. And I get to share with people. I get to share with people like Usher. I get to share with people like Karen, you know, um, Terrence Howard. I get to share with people that you know, uh, you know, uh, Big Boy and you know, and those guys. Mm-hmm. And I get to share with the young people today. Right. Right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was reading Harry Harry Belafonte's um, memoir, which is, that's an endeavor. I don't know if yours is like seven, almost 800 pages long. Is your is your book that long? Well, <laughs> it may be long, it may be long, that long. <laughs> maybe one page. <laughs> but it was, a, it, it was a fabulous journey, my song. And and in, in his book, I just love these type of, of journeys because, He's lived long enough for it to be, you know, sort of really epic. And you, so you're reading a history book uh, as lived by this person. And similarly, yes. when one reads your book, you know, as you're writing, one is going to be reading a history book through your life, which makes it a lot easier to remember because because we'll be identifying with you. And we like you, so we'll remember the details. Thank you, my queen. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so what did you tell us? Tell us about. Give us some stories. I mean, you know, you you've had like some. Some of your mentors are no longer with us, and some of the folks mm-hmm. you you hung out with, um, Gregory Hines, Sammy Davis oh, Jr. Gregory. Oh my Gregory. goodness, they're not with Gregory. us anymore. Yeah. Nina oh, Simone, you know. Yeah. Well, Gregory. Yeah. Uh, Gregory. I went and saw Gregory in Jelly's last jam. Mm. Uh, prior to uh, it was uh, it was ninety two, yeah. Uh, when I had we're ninety six when I had my my accident, mm. and when I came back, uh, you know, started working to get myself back at, at Kessler back east, um, up in Jersey. It was my birthday that year, mm. and I wanted to see a show, so I said I want to see Jelly's last jam, mm. and I went to see the show. And Gregory and Savion Glover and the cast just mm. did it a magnificent job. And after the show was over, and, you know, Greg was standing there taking his bow, and he stopped it, stopped his bow, and he said, he introduced me in the audience. And then he came up and he said, listen, Ben, if you can get ready, keep David just leaving the show. Come this way. Mm. Come this way. And at the time, I could hardly lift my leg. I mean, I had, I had a trait. You know, I had, they had taken my spleen. I had a broken leg. I had, you know, I had a stroke on my right side. He said, if you can be ready, come this way. And I got there. I opened that show. <laughs> wow. I opened that show. And people, and the doctors said, would say things like, you know, when I first had the accident in 1992, had the accident, um, the doctor said, it's going to be at least three years before you'll ever walk again. Hmm. And uh, as far as his career, I think he should think about another career. So when he sent the occupational therapist to work with me on my motor skills, I didn't know what an occupational therapist was. Mm-hmm. I thought they were people who showed me how to get a new job. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, I thought so, like, too, until right now, yeah, no? 
occupational therapy. Occupation, right? Right, right. Because to show me how to get a new job. So he's telling my doctor, telling me, you'll never work in show business again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had a trach. You know, I had, you know, I took my spleen. Mm-hmm. I had a broken left leg. I had a stroke on my right side. I mean, that was, that was done. Yeah. But the letters and the prayers that came through were amazing. Mm-hmm. They gave me encouragement, you know. And then Gregory said, come this way. And that was my, that was a green light. Mm-hmm. And 10 months later, after my accident, I walked on stage in Jelly's last chair. Wow. And all the doctors who said it would be three years before I'd walk again and get my career, mm-hmm. they were sitting in the audience with their mouths gaped open. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> and, was, I mean, it was, and Lexus sponsored my, my comeback. Mm. And it was packed. The place was packed. Wow. Packed. Wow. Standing room. Yeah. Had you been driving a Lexus when you had the accident? No, no. Oh, Mm-mm. okay. No, I hadn't. Mm. I was driving a Corvette. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't sponsor me, so I don't drive Corvettes anymore. <laughs> yeah, they should have, they should have like, sponsored you totally. It's like, yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> wow, that is amazing, though. So I guess that sort of really shows a person that if you have something to strive toward, it, it makes it, I mean, the journey was difficult getting from being injured to becoming, you know, well enough to be able to do what you loved again. Yeah, you know what it was? Um, for my, you know, usually in program, the playbill, mm-hmm. you put your bio, right? Right. So when they asked me what my bio, I said, for my bio, put footprints. Mm. So oh. those who are reading, nice. when they see me on that stage, they know how I got there. Yeah. You know the story of footprints, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, it was, it was some, it was that within me carrying me. Mm-hmm. It was the God of my understanding carrying me. Right. And when I was going through all the turmoil and all the heartbreak and all the broken body and my world was torn apart mm-hmm. and I turned and I said, well, you know, you promised you'd be with me when I, you know, when I got into this journey. You said you're always with me. He said, when you, when you went through that whole thing, it was me carrying you through the storm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't of your own cognizance. So, mm-hmm. you know, so I could praise and thanks. Praise yeah. and thanks. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And then, and then your daughter, one of your daughters um, was in a really horrific car accident, Yes, right? I lost a daughter. I yeah, yeah, it's like, wow. Was that before yeah. yours or after yours? Yes, before mine. Oh, before mine. wow, yeah. yeah that, that took me on a spin. Mm-hmm. That took me right out. That took me right out. It's still this day, you know. I've learned to live with it. Mm-hmm. Any bereaved parent out there knows. You know, you learn to live with it, but you never get over it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a part of your heart that's open. There's, there's a hole. Mm-hmm. There's a hole there. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. Yeah. I was, um, you know, again, looking at your wonderful website. <laughs> and, uh, and and I wanted you to talk about, you know, some of your, your projects. And then I want to go back to Sammy Davis, Jr. and Nina oh, Simone because, like, and you Nina know, you, you're, you're an insider. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Like, right. So I want you to tell us some stories. But I want you to talk about, you know, Stand for Diabetes. That's a great oh, yeah. commercial that yeah. you have on your website. Thank you. Well, stand for diabetes. I was, I was diagnosed in uh, 07, um, and I didn't know what had happened, you know, uh, what was going on. And uh, I collapsed, and I was with my daughter. She said, Dad, mm-hmm. she said, she started saying, Dad, you don't, you're not you're not hitting all the pressures. And I said, you know, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I collapsed after doing a speech. Mm-hmm. And so she takes me to the hospital. This is my baby daughter, Karan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we go in the hospital, and they say, well, you know, if you, your, your, your blood sugar is so high, we'd like you to stay overnight. And so we can, you know, 
monitor you. And I said, well, you got my shoe, you're my blood, you let me go. <laughs> he said, no, you got you to gotta stay overnight. Mm-hmm. So I stayed overnight, and I was going doing my thing, you know, and in the hospital. Next morning, they came in, and they said, you got type 2 diabetes. And I said, and I looked at the guy in the bed next to me, I said, oh, shame, you got type 2 diabetes, because I know that I talk to real. I'm Benzerine, I don't get diabetes. Mm -hmm. They said, no, you got type 2 diabetes. And the thing about it is that, you know, uh, when you don't know, you don't know. Mm-hmm. And so right away, the panic jumps in. You know, you hear about the amputation, and you hear about death, and you hear all these things flash through your mind, mm-hmm. and they flash through my mind. You know, oh, my God, how am I going to perform? How am I going to be back on stage? How is my life going to be? I'm going to have to be, because I played a character in Webster some years ago. Mm-hmm where they had the big needles. Yeah. The guy had to do here, you know, the character had to do insulin, and, you know, the characters thought that he was a drug addict because he had his insulin kit. Right. And so I'm looking, I'm thinking, flashing back on the, on the website. I'm saying, oh, my God, I'm happy to be shooting up with a needle. People don't think I'm a joggy. You know, I went this whole thing in my head until I went to my doctor, mm-hmm. and he said, no, you can live with this. Mm-hmm. He said, change your eating habits. And he said, what? He said, yeah, just change your eating habits. He said, exercise. That's when I exercise. Mm-hmm. He said, and we're going to put you on insulin. He put me on insulin. I said, is that all it is? Mm-hmm. Well, change my eating habits, exercise, and insulin? I mean, do my medication? He mm-hmm. said, yeah. So I went to a company called Santa Fe. Mm-hmm. I said, listen, I want to get out there and talk to the community. And let them know I've got, I can get diabetes. And it's such a high rate. At that time, there were 23 million people living with diabetes in the country. Mm-hmm. Now there's 26 million. So I want to get on the campaign. And I want to let the people know we can beat this. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why I started our website, Stand for Diabetes Support. Mm-hmm. You know, to let people know we can beat this. You know, it's a simple thing. Change the dialogue around. Stop telling yourself that you have a challenge. No, you have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. An opportunity towards better health. You are not suffering. You're living with diabetes. And you, once you change your dialogue about it, you'll start doing the things that are right for your body, for your body temple, which you've been blessed with. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll stop eating, you know, you'll, you'll start eating the proper things for your body. You'll drink more water. You'll exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, and you'll do your medication. If you're on medication, if you're on insulin, do your insulin. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And you can live a good life with it. And if America would take the regimen of people living with diabetes to exercise more, eat the proper foods, we'd have a healthier country. Mm-hmm. Right. We have like, I mean, we're from 23 to 26 million people in this country now living with diabetes. Yeah. And, and if we look at our young people, the obesity mm-hmm. is off the charts. Yeah. So I have to get out there. I have to get out there. I have to get out there for my young people and for the health of, of the people. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been given this for a reason, this diabetes. I've been giving it for a reason, not to sit back and, and feel sorry for myself, but to get into the battle mm-hmm. and run front, head on, and say, we can defeat this yeah. as a people when we come consciously together and stop being the people. I feel like we live, people live with diabetes like, like it's like us, a doctor's do the who. Mm. You know, we're the who, the people who are living with diabetes are like the who. Nobody knows we're here. We're screaming the American diabetes are out there. They're, everyone's doing it. Conferences and everything. There's uh, TOYC, which is also a, a company that I went to and said, you've got to help me get the message out there. And I, I, I teamed up with them. And, uh, you know, and they're out there. But how many people know about it? Then we say, we wonder why our country is feeling ill. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the information. We've got to turn the dialogue around. As soon as a person gets down, yes, amputee happens. I'm not, I'm not negating that the terrible, horrible things happen. Yes, amputee happens. Yes, death will happen. Yes, all these horrible things happen. But here's the good news. Mm-hmm. If we turn our consciousness around, we could do something about it in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Yeah. You know, and we'll save our children. We'll save our tomorrow, a generation. We'll, we'll diabetes will go away in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it definitely can. Um, it can. It really can. I mean, there are certain certain types of diabetes that really can go away. And like yeah. you said, it's it's you know what you eat and also your attitude and the exercise is so important because important. it has to do with important. circulation. And a exactly. lot of times the amputation happens because we're not moving enough. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, and those people living with type 1. You know, I love the story where this kid talks about the fact that, you know, he wouldn't go out because of the fact that he had to take his insulin and he had type 1. And mm-hmm. we saw the team type 1, and they were cycling, cycling guys who cycle around type team type 1. They're amazing. And he saw them on TV, and, he's, and he, took this, he told his mother, he said, Mom, I'm going to go to the park. And she said, you sure? He said, yeah. He went to the park, and he's sitting there, and he had to take his insulin shot check his blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And the kid from across the park saw him mm-hmm. and came running over and he looked and he said, you have diabetes? He said, yeah. He said, I have diabetes too. <laughs> because of the fact that he, he came out mm-hmm. and was not ashamed that he had to check his blood sugar. Mm-hmm. Another kid who had to check his blood sugar became, you know, okay with it. Right. And I want to get into the school system. I want to get into the young people. Mm-hmm. Those kids who are living in school with diabetes, they should be, be supported and become examples of good health. Mm-hmm. Because they have to exercise, they have to eat the proper foods, right. and they've got to do their insulin if they're on insulin. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> it yeah. sounds simple to me. You want to help your country? It sounds mm-hmm. simple to me. Right. Yeah, and it, it sort of goes right into a lot of our schools having you know gardens for the children, so they're growing mm-hmm. good, they're growing exactly. fresh food exactly. and and we eating more vegetables. Mm-hmm. We need to embrace that. Yeah. We need to embrace that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. a lot a lot of you know the diabetes comes from not having fresh food. You know, eating exactly. a lot of processed food and. Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. Oz has a group called Health Corps. Mm-hmm. You know, which I'm 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 partnering with. Uh-huh. You know, because you know, because they are in the school system. Mm-hmm. And when you're getting kids to think about health better, you know, better health. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I was just thinking as you were talking that, um, you know, you use, you know, these potentially, um, you know, heartbreaking or negative uh, news, you know, as an opportunity. Yes, exactly. Because what happens is when you throw out the negative and you try to frighten people, you know, you try to fight them. Oh, you're going to have diabetes. And you, you know, you're going to take, you're going to take your leg off. And all these horror stories, instead of telling them, you can live with this. Mm-hmm. You can live with this. All you got to do is exercise more. All you got to do is your, your medication, if you're on medication, mm-hmm. and watch what you eat. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to eat all that sugar. Right. You know, you don't, have to, you don't have to eat the whole cake and a slice of it, a thin slice. You know, the whole thing. <laughs> yeah. You know? Be moderate. You know? yeah. Moderation. <laughs> and, with, and with the obesity today with young people, mm-hmm. we've got a job on our hands. Mm-hmm. A big job to make yeah. our country healthier mm-hmm. and to make the world a healthier place. Right, Not right. Not just America, it's the world. Mm-hmm. 26 million in America, 7 million who are living with it and don't even know they have it. And every 21 seconds, somebody else is diagnosed with diabetes. It's a lot We've of people. We've got a job ahead of us. Yeah, certainly. But we certainly. can do this. We can do this. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And then, you know, they... Tell them to go to my website, standfordiabetes.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Stan, S-T-A-N-D for diabetes, <laughs> yeah. definitely. Yeah, and also um, uh, there have been some um, alternative treatments, like, you know, the raw food diet exactly. has, has, has really helped, you know, exactly. some people might not even need insulin exactly. or need less medicine. Raw. <laughs> oh, for real? 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> I raised my hand. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm a member. <laughs> that is so awesome. Mm-hmm. Oh. But wow. that's my choice. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. my choice. It might not be the choice for that person who's living with diabetes next door. Mm-hmm. Right. They may need something else for their diet. I'm just saying that my choice, my my decision to be, you know, eat, you know, vegetarian or raw is 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 right. It's right for me. Mm-hmm. Huh? Right. Yeah. Hmm. So are you going to come out with a cookbook after you come out with your memoir? Probably so. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was trying uh, raw. I think I was in raw for like about a month, six weeks, and, mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to just be vegan right at the moment because I don't know how to cook enough, and I've been hungry. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I gotta... you know, yeah, but there are, there are cookbooks that are, or, you know, preparing books. Mm-hmm. To show you. It, it, it's a whole school. I know, I know. <laughs> I'd rather just hire somebody. Just come in and cook my meals for the yes, week. Yes, there you go. Fix my there meals for the week. You know, well, that's what I do. I don't really prepare my foods. I go, I go to a vegan restaurant around the corner. I get me a week's supply of food, and I'm fine. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, yeah. when I'm on the road, you know, I yeah, and see, being on the road is another thing mm. because in the, on the road, you you don't you can't find you know the foods that I eat in every everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I eat a lot of salads. You know, I choose what I choose to you know to eat. Yes. and I usually carry what I what I need with me. Mm-hmm. That's my choice. That's that's my choice. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to get your own. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. I found when I was traveling, like when I go out of the country, mm-hmm. one of my suitcases just has food, like uh-huh. exactly. nuts and and, mm-hmm. and supplements exactly. and this exactly. and that. <laughs> yes. Because when I fly, I tell them when I fly, I say, you know, give me a vegan plate. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, when I have a chance to order, that's what I do. If I don't, I take my nuts and I take, you know, my mm-hmm. food that I eat. Yeah. You know, and I look at the person next door and they got all this. And that's for their choice of their life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not judging anybody. Right. What's right for me is right for me. What's right for them is right for them. Let's all get up the mountaintop together. Don't hurt nobody on the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. Don't kick anybody off the mountaintop. <laughs> right. Now, there's room for all of us, that's for sure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh. You know? Wow. So, um, tell us about some of your, um, you know, your mentors and uh, folks Sammy, that, Sammy, yeah, Frank, mm-hmm. all the boys, you know, Nina Simone, and mm-hmm. you know, and all those people, Diana Walsh, Calvin McRae. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah. Those are people I grew up on. You know, mm-hmm. Etta James. Wow. Ray Charles. Yeah. Wow. The list goes on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, right across the street from me, had I known when I was a child, I'd have paid a little bit more attention. Was mm-hmm. it was a, a shoe shine parlor? Mm-hmm. And in those days, you had the Blue Law in Brooklyn, right? Uh-huh. That meant there was no alcohol on Sunday. Oh, wow. All the liquor stores shut down. So all the deacons from the churches would line up at Tip Tap and Toe to get their shoes shined. I used to find that strange until I found out that Tip Tap and Toe was a vaudevillette. Mm. And they used to tap dance while they would shine shoes. Yeah. And they pop their rags and they put on a show, you know, for the deacons when they came in to get their shoes shine and they served them little Dixie cups. And I thought it was water, but it was liquor. Oh, the deacons <laughs> had liquor on the blue oh, Sunday? Yeah, yeah. They'd stack up on liquor, you know, uh, on a Friday and Saturday. And uh-huh. put it in the back. And then they'd sell those Dixie cups of shots of liquor before the, pre- the, 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 the deacons went to church. <laughs> wow! Well, they got their shoes shine, but they would put on a show. They'd pop their rags and they would dance. And those kids would press our nose up against the window and watch them in awe. Mm. They'd play jazz and they'd dance to catch like that, you know? Wow, that's mm-hmm. really cool. I've, I've had people like that in my life. 
Mm. You know, mm-hmm. I've had I've had a mayor, you know, Pip Wilson, my God, yeah. you know, Jimmy Slide, and you know, I've had some amazing people touch my life. You know, Sandman Sims used to travel around with me, trying to show me how to tap. I'm a, I'm a jazz dancer, you know. Mm. Yeah, he would, you know, he would travel around with me. I mean, these are amazing trainers. Whew. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, you know? Oh, wow. You know? wow. Della Reese. Della Reese. I just went to her house the other day. Oh, yeah. She yeah, was Della she was here at the rehearsal room. Um, yes, I love Della. She is you know? wonderful. Time, we're, we're, she gave me a script. She wants me to work on a director for her. You know, so I'm working on that. You know, people have <laughs> touched my lives. Mm-hmm. Nancy Wilson. Oh, you know, really? Jimmy, Jimmy Smith. My God. Uh. <laughs> Come on. You know? Mm. Jesus. Oh, little, wow. Little, 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 I mean, amazing. Amazing. Kenneth James. Yeah. Wow. I mean, my, the legacy goes on and on. You know, the Temptations, mm-hmm. the OJs. Oh, man. You know, the Trineas, as I said. You know, when I came to Vegas, I saw, I mean, and it was, I, I was I was opening for a guy named um, Alan King. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, there was a guy named Buster Keith. And they had a big, huge fan on the stage at Caesar's Palace, and he just standing and leaning into the into the wind. That was his act. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was hysterical. Chubby Checker was right across the street. Mm. And this was a little kid from Brooklyn. My first time in Vegas when it was a desert. When Vegas was Vegas, now it's you know Disneyland for adults. You know, <laughs> in yeah. those days it was Vegas. Mm. And I'd just hang out with these guys. Mm-hmm. We'd sit around the table. And I'd sit around. I was playing the Riviera. And I'd sit around the table. And it was, it was uh, Bill Cosby, Richard Pryor. Um, there was uh, Jackie Green. There was uh, Flip Wilson. There was mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, Don Rickles. And they'd be sitting around trying to out-joke each other. Mm-hmm. And they'd start at like 4 or 5 in the morning. And they'd be there till 10 o'clock. And your sides would be hurting. <laughs> hurting. Wow. You know, this is the legacy that I come from. Mm-hmm. You know, and Sammy Davis. Yeah. My God, Sammy, you know. Oh, God, he touched my life. Oh, he touched my life. Mm-hmm. You know, we met on the set of, I met him in Vegas. I tell the story in my in my act. Mm-hmm. But we met in Vegas. And uh, he, he he once said, you know, you know, if you want to get this business, come talk to me. And, and then we met again on on a, on the set of Sweet, of Sweet Charity. Right. But then he took me to London with him. And that's when I found my family, of course. But, uh. You know, we went to London. We did Golden Boy in London, and hanging out with him was an amazing, amazing, amazing journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've been really blessed. Mm-hmm. I've had some wonderful people in my life. The list goes on and on and on and on. When I was in high school, I went to a school called the Bernice Johnson's Dance School, mm-hmm. and Bernice Johnson one day said, "I want to take my dance troupe over to uh, to Pittsburgh." And we're going to do the Pittsburgh, the first Pittsburgh Jazz Festival. Mary Lou Williams put it on. Wow, on, Mary Lou Williams! Mary oh my Lou goodness! Put it on. And on the show was Dakota Staten, Jimmy Smith, Thelonious oh. Monk, um, uh, Harold Betters, uh, and the list goes on. Joe Williams, and he was a, at Mom's Mabley, oh. and I'm in the wings watching these cats. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like, I'm like blown away. I mean, it was amazing to Dakota Staten. Mm. Oh, that's a legacy I come from. <laughs> so wonder you're so great. You've got, like, all these models. Like, okay, well, you you know what greatness is. Yes, I do. Yeah, because I, I just think about our young folks. Um, mm-hmm. The reason why they don't live up to their potential is because they don't know who they are. 
Because if they knew who they were, they would say, oh, this is beneath me. I can't do that. Well, we don't teach them that, do we? No, no. No, we teach them how to make a living instead of how to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Wow, wow. And, and Red Fox? Um... Oh, Red Fox. Oh, God. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Red Fox and Chucky Green, all those guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. So have have things got easier pig for meat, you? Pig meat Markham. Oh, for real? Wow. Yeah. Mom's May. I told you Mom's May. Yeah. There was this gorgeous woman walked into the Pittsburgh Jazz Festival. Mm-hmm. She was gorgeous. Mm. And she walks into her room and mom's neighbor walks out. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> now, that'll blow your mind. That'll blow your mind. Mm. This gorgeous woman walks in and then she, she goes in the room and gets into this character and walks out as mom's neighbor. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Flip Wilson, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, you know. Yeah. Um, Godfrey Cambridge. Oh, wow. You know, all these yeah. cats, you know. I knew mm-hmm. all these guys. Mm-hmm. Brock Peters, mm-hmm. you know. I knew yeah. all these guys. And, of course, Gregory Hines, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the Hines brothers, Hines, Hines, and Dad. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. These are all the guys that I grew up under, yeah. you know, watching wow. these guys. Mm. Just, just blown away. And I wasn't in the theater. You know, the first show I did was a show called The Prodigal Son mm. out of high school. Uh-huh. Uh, it was directed by a woman named Vinette Carroll. Uh, I don't know if you know her. She's, she's an African woman, African-American woman. And she directed a show called Your Arms Are Too Short to Box. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that That's Carroll. famous. The yeah. Son. And oh. one day I was leaving the theater and this guy walks up to me and he says, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, where's the men's dressing room? And I said, well, it's back there. And he looked at me and said, oh, he says, by the way, he says, uh, he says you're Benjamin Vereen, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, well, my name is Langston Hughes. He said, uh, can I buy you dinner? <laughs> and we became good friends. <laughs> Langston Hughes? Are you serious? Langston Hughes. Oh, my God. He invited me up to his place in Harlem, and he sat there and he gave me two of his books, I Wonder as I Wander and, and The Big Sea. Oh. And he told me stories. His travel books. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Langston Hughes. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, yes. Oh. <laughs> Do you still have the books? Oh, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yes, I oh, do. My, did, Matter of fact, my daughter collects all my stuff. Because I, I'm traveling so much, she just holds on to things. She's that's a collector. Good. She's a filmmaker, Karan. Oh. So she holds on to things for me. You know, so, you know, she and, she and my, my grandson, they live with me now. So I'm excited about that. Oh, my God. Langston Hughes. Langston Hughes, yes. Oh, did you know James Baldwin, too? Excuse me? Did you know James Baldwin, too? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. James <laughs> Baldwin and I sat together in Paris. Oh, no, and, yeah, in, in, in uh, um, where was it? It was in south of France. Yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. when Ava Simone lived, too, in south of France. Yes, he was. Yes, he was. And we were, I was in a club, and uh, George uh, um, Shearing and, and um, James mm. Baldwin, we were all sitting at the table. And, this, and, uh, and uh, um, that was the night that uh, Princess Grace came to see my show mm. at the Sportsman's Club. Wow. And and I was flying home, and I was flying from to France, uh, from France back to the United States, and I read the paper. That's when she had, she had, she came to see me, and she later she died. Oh. Uh, she had that accident, um, Princess Grace. Yeah. And, and I did a show called The Night of the Hundred Stars. I know I'm giving you a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm just even dying at the mouth now. You just open, you open the floodgate now. <laughs> but I did a show called The Night of the Hundred Stars. Mm-hmm. 
Alex Cohen wanted to have 100 stars on the stage at, at Radio City. He got over 200. Wow, stars. nice. I mean, I'm walking around, and, you know, people say, you know, I'm, I'm hearing, hi, Ben. And I, I'm in the elevator, and there's Paul Newman and, and you know, and Joanne Woodworth and, and Sammy Davis, Frank Sinatra, mm-hmm. and there's Lauren Chaney. There's, you know, there's uh, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., you know, and, and, and so we, we do this, this picture, you know, on, on these raptors, all the stars. There's 200 some odd stars. Mm-hmm. And there's some beautiful woman. I was trying to make it down the, these, these steps. As I reach out a hand to my hand, and I get down to the bottom of the stairs, and she turns to me, she says, Thank you, Ben. It was Princess Grace. Oh. Yeah, my knees went weak. <laughs> 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 and then it comes by, now she came back to see me when I was in France, mm-hmm. in her hometown. You know, so I met her, you know, Prince Rainier and all those people. Mm-hmm. So I've had a wonderful, wonderful, thankful life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thankful. I'm so thankful to, to you know, to my God, my understanding that has allowed me this opportunity, the opportunity to talk to you. This is a really wonderful. With you, yeah. you know, and you know, and you know, and your journey. This is beautiful. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you. you so thank much. You. This is from, wow, and wow, the audiences are going to just be in for such a treat. Um, I'm so know. excited about coming back to San Francisco. Yeah. You know, I, I came to San Francisco hmm. driving a mail truck. Really? In the 60s. It was a 1954 mail truck. I lived in it. You lived in it? I lived in this mail truck, and I parked behind the Orpheum Theater to do air. Huh. And one morning I woke up and I was being towed away. In, while you were in there? Yeah, while I was in the truck. Oh, man. <laughs> That's how I first came to San Francisco. Wow, San Francisco, and, wow. I mean, they tell you now. They were telling people then, too, huh? <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> and I got an apartment. Huh. And I ended up, you know, I ended up doing No Place to Be Somebody via my Charles Cardone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I heard about, you know, No Place to Be Somebody, because um, Lorraine Hansberry Theater, um, um, yes. It has a new home now right there on Post. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So so you know Stanley, uh, you knew Stanley Williams and, and Clinton, um, Clinton Easter then? Yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow, this is amazing. So so it's really interesting. You're going to be here June 12th through 17th, just just one week. And, yes, and I can just yes. see how each, each if, I mean, I know you're going to have your routine, but you could actually start out on one, at, at one point and then just oh, over yeah. the course of the of the week, yeah, we just, you know, we leave off go. where you left off and just keep on going with the story. <laughs> we didn't have a party. We didn't have a party. I'm yeah. excited about coming home to San Francisco. Yeah. Last city by the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, so who are you, who's, who's your band? Are you bringing your own people? Yes, I'm bringing, um, David Loeb on the keyboards. I'm mm. bringing, uh, I'm bringing a fantastic cat has been with me for years. Mm. Um, Mark Picciani on drums mm. and a guy named Tom Kennedy on the bass. Nice. And, and, and if you're lucky, mm. my son will perform. Your son? Plays, plays Jimbe. Oh, seriously? If you're lucky. If you're lucky. Oh, okay. <laughs> He's going to come up the last night because we're going from there to Australia. Oh. From Australia, we're going to New York City. And so I'm working on a show, mm-hmm. uh, which we're going to be working on in, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And we're taking it to uh, Australia. And then we're coming back to Broadway right. and uh, to open the thing called uh, 54, 54 Below. And then that's the start of a show, which we're calling The Last of the Showmen, which we're taking, we're going to bring back to Broadway uh, next season. Mm-hmm. 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 Wow, that's, that's really something. So, so you're still working it when you when you go to Australia? 
Yeah, yeah, still working. Still fine tuning it. Still refining it, fine tuning it, and you know, then we're gonna then we're gonna blow it out and do a bigger rendition of the show for for next season. And I want to bring it back to San Francisco. Oh, that would be so nice. Yeah, praying for it because it's gonna be really. I get to pay tribute to all the wonderful people who've touched my life and talk about what it was like and what it is like. Yeah. Wow. I I get to touch some wonderful people's. You're my godson's usher. You know, I get to touch, you know, Big Boy and all these cats. Yeah, I thought that was so cool, you know, that, um, uh, see, what was that, that film, um, Idlewood. Um, Idlewild, yeah. Idlewild, yeah, and then there was another one, too, um, where you actually, um, you know, you were able to, to share, you know, voice lessons and acting techniques and things like that, and, and basically sort of intergenerational kind of sharing, you yes, know, being, being yes. the elder, uh, you know, and, and, and having, you know, youth or younger artists that are interested in in, yes. uh, in this living legacy that you embody. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I just want to pass it on. Mm-hmm. It's not mine to keep. Yeah. So when's your book coming out? Huh. <laughs> as soon as the play comes out next year. <laughs> okay. We're trying to make it the same time. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, we've been looking for that. Maybe I can, uh, I can have you on again to talk about that. I'd like that. I'd like that very much. Oh, cool. And I'm so looking forward to you um, when you come to town with your stepping out with Denver Green. That should be really <laughs> cool at the Raz Room at Hotel Nico. All right, super. Well, until then, got a couple of weeks, um, uh, you know, safe travels and, um, and you know, you know, good, good, good luck in, in all your in all of your endeavors. And thank, thank you so you. much for this great conversation. It's been so fun. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all right, <laughs> you take good care. Have a wonderful day. Okay. Right, you too. Peace and blessings. Bye bye.